murder, insanity, suicide. The history of Hill House was ideal. It had everything I wanted. It was built 90 odd, very odd years ago, by a man named Hugh Crane, as a home for his wife and daughter in the most remote part of New England he could find. Welcome to Now Playing's The Haunting Movie Retrospective Series. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? But some houses, like Hill House, are born bad. Hosted by Jacob. You are a looker, aren't you? A real tomato. Arnie. You're worse than a guy. You're like a frat guy. And Stuart. You're a monster. You're the monster of Hill House. This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You're scared. I can tell. How? Because I'm scared. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. I'm listening. Today we're discussing The Haunting of Hill House, starring Mikhail Hoosman, Carla Gugino, Henry Thomas, Elizabeth Reeser, Oliver Jackson Cohen, Kate Siegel, Victoria Pedretti, Lulu Wilson, McKenna Grace, Paxton Singleton, Julian Hillard, Violet McGraw, and Timothy Hutton. Directed by Mike Flanagan. This is the now playing co-host who's always smiling, but isn't happy, Arnie. And Stuart. And once again, it's taken 60 million years to develop the carnivorous biped you hear before you. This is Jacob. It felt like it took 60 million years to watch The Haunting of Hill House. My lord, is this a long miniseries. Nine and a half hours, but yes, it is an investment, which brings me, I guess, to my first musing. How the hell would you do that with Shirley Jackson's novel? And why would you do that? This is my question for you, Stuart, because, okay, so far we've seen 1963. Well, we've seen all of these now because we're talking about this one, but we reviewed 1963, we reviewed 1999. I'm guessing, and then I've seen this, I'm guessing the novel more closely matches the 1963 version. Would that be a good assumption? Um, to a degree. Although I would say this miniseries also has elements that are both in the 63 movie and only in the novel. So... Yes, uh, probably that's accurate. If you wanted to see what's mostly there on the page, if you're going to cheat and you had a book report, watch the 1963 movie. The other ones will get you in trouble. Yeah, that's what I was guessing again, because those characters, like there's Theo, there is Nell. We're going to get all those character names again, but like they're different relationships. I'm like, one of these is right, one of these is wrong. And I was guessing the 63 one is closer, (laughs) which just creates a whole lot of questions with this one now. Not having read the book, if I had, I probably would have played this game even further but watching two movies you get what is a callback you remember things that were in the first movie that are in the second but now that there's a mini series it truly lets me know what is the heart of hill house what are the things (laughs) you have to have you have to have two women nell and theo you have to have an iron staircase you have to have bumping in the night you have to have statues lots of statues (laughs) It just was interesting to see what is considered Hill House. If you're making a Hill House, what must you do? You have to have a big chimney flue. 
You have to say whoever walks there walks alone. Yeah, you're right. There are things that fans of the book would expect and need. But let's face it. If you're adapting and modernizing Shirley Jackson's book, those fans haven't been happy. They weren't happy in 1999. Maybe they're not happy that Spielberg still has the rights 20 years later and is really feeling bad about what he did 20 years ago. Wants to fix it. Amblin, his company, is looking to get into the streaming game. If you know, I think Spielberg has been pretty vocal. He's been anti-Netflix. He hasn't really wanted to go there. Well, that's because they don't have real movies, according to Patty Jenkins. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Spielberg has been one to support the theatrical experience and be reluctant to build things for streaming platforms. But I think he realized by 2018, you know, it's time to get in this game. There's a lot of money to be had. It's, it's what people are watching. It's money. There's money there. Yeah, and we have the rights to certain things. Let's see if somebody can come up with a TV series for Hill House. And so, that you know, it's just kind of an open call. They had a lot of talent come and pitch them, and the pitch they liked the best came from Mike Flanagan. And this was after he did Gerald's Game, correct? Yes. Yeah, we know his Stephen King work. We've already covered Gerald's Game, and after he finished this, he did go on to revisit the Overlook Hotel in Dr. Sleep. So here's my question, because I'm watching this, and I know Flanagan, he has a history with King. I know this story, The Haunting, was an influence on The Shining. So, okay, that's why I get a big Shining vibe off of this one. What I also got off of, and I never read the book, but I watched the movies and miniseries, is It. Like, a group of kids experience the paranormal, it messes up their lives, and then a suicide brings them all back together, and they gotta confront that paranormal evil. Oh, you just stole my review, Jacob, because yes, that's exactly what we're watching. Well, that, no, that's what I wanted to know up front, like, which was more like the book, that 1963 one or this, because this feels like Flanagan is bringing even more King into it. And I don't know if that was ever admitted to or talked about, but I get strong it vibes from this. Never read the book, but I've seen the, again, the miniseries and the movies. And right away, I got that impression within the first couple episodes. Flanagan didn't say anything about it being an influence, but we know he loves Stephen King and the feeling is mutual. So I, undoubtedly, it was an influence. I actually think if you're talking about how we wound up with a show about a family that goes back and forth between their childhood drama 20 years before and present day, you had to look no further than what was winning the Emmy that year. When this thing got a green light, the hottest show on television was This Is Us. Oh, that my all my family talks about that. I refuse to watch it. It sounds awful. Not my kind of show is what I mean by that. I've seen trailers for it, and I think, Stuart, you've told me it's good. But man, the trailers for it may, just tell me that's not a show I will enjoy. It looks like a lot of crying family drama or something. No, I don't want that. It is a lot of crying family drama. And again, I think it was seen as such an amazing show because network TV, let's face it, has been falling behind. It's had to play catch up with HBO and cable series and now streaming series. The fact that you could have a good old-fashioned NBC show where half the time it's Mandy Moore raising a, a black kid, a white kid, and an obese girl, and then seeing how those moments touch them in modern day, it was just the trend of the time. And so can we do a very special Halloween version of that? I don't know. That's the vibe I get off of this series. But the only thing that Flanagan talked about as an influence, a show I've never watched, but I can tell from the funeral home, it, it, it's, it's here somewhere, six feet under. Yeah. That I've seen a few episodes of, and it did feel like an influence. That show was more quirky, though. That show was a macabre, but 
lighthearted look at death in most in most of the episode I saw anyway. It's not quite so morose as what we're here to discuss. Right. Not the tearjerker that This Is Us is or, yeah, what they're obviously going for. It should also be said that maybe why they went with Flanagan was he was passionate. Like, he came with them and I have to do this series. I'm such a fan of this book. I have no idea how to adapt it, even before he knew how to do it. Oh, so he didn't have a plan beforehand. No plan. But he was like, I am just such a fan. Because this is a very intricate, woven, back-and-forth plot. Like, I would have figured someone had worked on this a long time. Oh, I think he did work on it for well over a year. I think it took every day of his life in 2017 to get here. And he talks about, I, there. I have uh, listened to commentary. Now, I imagine both of you have experienced this as a Netflix show. You hit click, and that was the show. But it is available on media. Like, you can go and get the Blu-ray, the DVD... And I was able to watch it again in that way. There are commentary tracks in four of the episodes. And one of the things that he talked about was just how much he learned about how you don't do a TV show by yourself. How you need that team of writers. You need that team of directors to stay on schedule. Because otherwise, everyone is always waiting around for you. And you're the only point person. And it becomes this long movie. You know, TV is not a long movie. You need creative help to to make those deadlines. And he really talks about this thing obsessing him. He probably couldn't have gotten through it if he wasn't such a fan of the book. I do feel, though, he may have been a fan of the book, but this is It Meets the Shining. Well, I throw out The Shining because The Haunting influenced The Shining, so I, I threw that one out. I, I'm not going to throw blame on that, Arnie. I, I want that to be my stance. However... The ghosts driving a person mad to the point of murder, was that in the book? Because that's not been in either of the previous movies, but that is The Shining. Self-murder. Self-murder, but not murdering children, which was The Shining. <laughs> we'll discuss what her motive is, though. I, I, wouldn't, I don't know if it's murder. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of influences here. I'm a believer that, like, we consume a lot of stuff and it all winds up in the things that we create. Nothing's ever created. But I do think that Flanagan also had some personal drama going on. He talks about, without revealing too many details, he lost a loved one. He desperately wished he had said some things before they died. And he saw this as his a chance to atone, as the word that he used. And so, yeah, he might have been influenced by it and all of that. But I also just think that he was here to commune with his own lost relatives and had a personal story that was invested as long with the Shirley Jackson story. But let's get into it. We got a lot of show to cover, so Arnie, give them that plot. The Haunting of Hill House tells the story of the Crane family in two time periods. In 1992, the family moved into Hill House and the events that happened there will cast a shadow over the rest of their lives. The story hops between the events of 1992 and present day. The family is mother Olivia Crane, played by Carla Gugino. She has a bit of psychic power and is most affected by living in Hill House. The father is Hugh Crane, portrayed in the past by Henry Thomas and in the present by Timothy Hutton. He was a house remodeler joining in on that 90s trend of buying houses cheap, fixing them up, and selling them for a profit. And Hill House promises the Cranes a very large profit. The Cranes had five children. The oldest is son Stephen, who grows up to be an author played by Mikhail Huseman. He became wealthy writing about the events of Hill House. The second child was Shirley, played in the past by Lulu Wilson and in the present by Elizabeth Reeser. Her mother's death caused Shirley to be impressed by the mortician's artistry, so she grew up and joined that profession. 
The third child is Theo, played as a child by McKenna Grace and as an adult by Kate Siegel. She is psychic like her mother. If she touches someone, she can see their thoughts and memories. As an adult, she uses this ability as a child psychologist. Then there are the youngest Crane children, the twins. Adult Luke has turned to heroin to deal with his childhood trauma and is played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. Luke's twin is Nell, played as an adult by Victoria Pedretti. In 1992, the family moved into Hill House, but each of them had a different experience with ghosts. Nell keeps seeing a woman with a broken neck. The other children have various experiences seeing ghosts, spooks, and specters, but Mother Olivia has it the worst, being tormented by an old tiny ghost named Poppy Hill, wife of Hill House's original owner, William Hill. Confused and driven mad by the ghosts, Olivia is convinced her children are in a living nightmare, and the only way to wake them up is to feed them strychnine. She succeeds in poisoning and killing the caretaker's daughter, who had befriended Luke. But Hugh rushes in and saves the rest of the children, and Olivia walks to the top of the tall iron staircase in the library and flings herself off of it to her death. These events lead to adult trauma and estrangement between the children and their father. The family have a friction-filled reunion when Nell returns to Hill House and commits suicide, hanging herself from the same staircase her mother used for suicide. In death, Nell realizes she was the broken neck girl that haunted her her entire life. But the adult children still see ghosts, and Father Hugh is haunted by the secrets he holds. Luke goes to burn the house down, but the ghosts won't let him, and creating hallucinations, they cause Luke to shoot up poison and die. The rest of the family comes, but Hugh is separated from his children. It's revealed the ghosts of those who die in Hill House live forever in that house. Hugh had left the house standing so the caretaker and his wife could visit the ghost of their dead daughter in exchange for them not pressing charges against him for murder. Or his wife, frankly. Yeah, the dead wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one that actually killed their daughter. Hugh had come from time to time to visit the content ghost of Olivia. The ghost of Nell appears to her siblings and resuscitates Luke, albeit barely, and the siblings get to say a warm goodbye to their sister, resolving long-held feelings of guilt and anger. Olivia and Hugh decide to be together forever as Hugh dies to become a young ghost spending eternity with his wife in that house. And the four surviving children leave and immediately have corrected the dysfunction that dominated their entire lives as credits roll. That's ten hours distilled into seven paragraphs. Pretty good, pretty good. And just to give a setup for you, because it is a series, you are going to watch episode to episode, there is a design to it. And I do think it's a rather crafty one. Each episode, we're going to meet a different family member, for the most part. We're going to see who they were in 1992. We're going to see who they became in 2018, as this suicide happens that brings them all together again. And we're going to start with, I think, our point of view character, Steven. Every character is named after someone we've seen before, someone that is part of the Hill House mythos. Flanagan admits that even though we hate haunting 1999, this is Steven Spielberg. You can even see in Hoosman when he puts on the glasses, he kind of looks like him. You sure it's not Stephen King, who's always a writer in his novels? <laughs> the protagonist is always a writer in his novels. Yeah, he does have a King quality in that he is a best-selling horror author. But what's interesting about him is that uh, he doesn't believe in the supernatural. He doesn't believe what he's peddling. He claims he lived through a traumatic, ghost-filled Amityville story, but in fact just thinks that his family has mental illness and all of this is shamefully being exploited for profit. 
Hoosman, I barely know. I've seen him in TV. Tremay, Orphan Black. I guess he was a big part of Game of Thrones. Didn't watch that show. I watched it. I don't recognize a lot of the people without the beards and various accoutrements that put them in the period back then. But I don't really know this actor. He's honestly the one I know least of everybody in the movie. And so... This first episode, I didn't realize this trick you're telling me, that each episode was going to focus, at least the first five episodes, focusing on a different sibling. And so I'm watching episode one, and I'm like, wow, they are woefully underdeveloping most of these characters. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't realize that trick until we got to the third one. I'm like, okay, I see the pattern. I get what you're doing. But yeah, this one, I'm like, oh, I guess this is going to be our main character. The main sibling here is Steven because, yeah, this whole episode is all about him. And Steven, by the way, is also watching over Flanagan's shoulder as he makes this series. So is there a commentary about the fact that Steven has created the narrative that everyone believes and, and you have to cue to the way Steven remembers these things? Maybe. I don't know. But we'll focus on the, the, the then part, and then we can look at the now part. I think what's interesting is Steven is the only one that doesn't really have a ghostly experience. All of his siblings, more or less, do have this phenomenal experience in this house, but not him. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of set me up when I saw the title, Steven Sees a Ghost. I'm like, oh, okay, this is going to be, yeah. Well, we'll start with then. He doesn't see one, I don't think, then. But his sister does, little Nell. She sees that bent neck lady, and that's kind of our first scare. Definitely is probably the... I saw this series when it came out in 2018. It remained the thing I most remembered. was like, when are we getting to the episode of Nell and the Bent Neck Lady? I remember <laughs> that one the most. It is the one that stays with you. Yeah, definitely. But all of them, even Luke, you know, her twin is drawing scary things and crayon and talking about meeting this girl that we just think has to be a ghost. This Abigail, no one else has seen her. She's out in the forest. It's a nice trick of the show that we'll find out in the end she is real or, you know, she was real to him before she became a ghost. But the fact that he has a no girls allowed sign he's putting up on his treehouse tends to make you think that she's another scary thing that is coming for these children at night. And then Shirley is talking in her sleep about the Red Room. And we'll remember that as being the nursery that's been kind of important in all of the Hill Houses before. Yeah, I I don't know if that door is red in that 1963 one because it was black and white, but I knew what she's talking about. That's that room that, yeah, the, the nursery like you called out. Yeah, I didn't realize if it was going to be the exact same room, but I knew... You guys told me that some of the things in haunted house films you always have are cold spots and the heart of the house where evil lurks. And so here, yep, both of those are going to be present. Have you guys ever seen Amityville Horror? I know we've talked about doing the series, but it is one of the more famous scenes that the family ends up doing what Stephen remembers, his father coming and grabbing him out of bed and carrying him out of the house, throwing him in the car and saying, we're out of here while blood is coming down the walls and voices are moaning. and. I mean, I've seen scenes of the blood coming down the walls. I've never seen the whole film, though, no. Never seen it at all. I've The closest I've come to seeing Amityville was Conjuring 2. Okay, <laughs> doesn't count. The thing to remember about that is there is a real family that maybe went through something, and then they had to go on with their lives after, you know, this supposed haunting event. And how has that story shaped who they became, even if you don't believe... That family did go through something. There was a murder in that house. There are people that are still traumatized that have appeared in documentaries. It's interesting that, to me, that this series has taken the tack. We're going to start really here with them fleeing and seeing the trauma. 
that, that, that to me is a really unique take on, you know, Amityville. Like, like that's when the movie ends. This is where our Hill House is going to begin. Yeah. And this is where the mystery begins. And if you, if you got to fill up 10 episodes, you got to have a good mystery. So showing us, you know, what happens, a father taking all his kids, running out of the house. Maybe Steve sees a ghost. Maybe that's his mom. We don't know what's happening with the mom and they leave. And like, we're just given all these little clues. So again, you're going to do 10 episodes. I want a good mystery. And yeah, this, that scene sets up a good mystery for me. What actually happened? Yeah. I agree. I'm kind of sucked in by these early scenes. Yeah, Luke says he sees Abigail up in the window, but we haven't really seen the mom too much in this first episode. Maybe that's her. It's really not clear, but we will know that Stephen emerges from this denying that there were ghosts. And we do know that mom died. We do have one scene of him watching dad talk to his lawyer and them discussing about like he's not going to go to jail but the tabloids are convinced that the husband did it they're ruling suicide but you know we just covered gone girl we know how this goes the the outside people always think foul play yeah and there's lots of things again that that's something that gets revealed from episode to episode like it was three hours before he called the cops like there's things that make him sound suspicious there'll be reasons for it by the end but he does sound suspicious well and of course you just figure He's not going to say ghosts. And knowing what movie I'm watching, I know that's going to be the true answer here. Yeah, you would think. I mean, I don't know. Again, the reading of the 1963 movie is completely psychological. And I think you could look at this story as completely psychological, too. A mom went crazy. She tried to hurt her kids. It traumatized them. And one of those children emulated that murder years later like maybe that's all that happened uh there's too many ghost sightings like what ends up happening with the dudleys and all that like that 1963 one i'm like it's 90 percent psychological 10 percent ghosts this one i'm like it's 100 percent psychological and also 100 percent ghosts <laughs> it's, it's both in this one yeah i get that the ghosts create the psychological problems now i mentioned i saw this again on dvd i did watch it netflix style twice and then i wanted to see these extended cuts they're really not new scenes usually it's re-edited scenes or scenes that are allowed to breathe maybe we get a little bit more time with characters or moments a perfect example is the beginning of this episode where it's kind of nice to watch this actress playing irene walker give a full four minute monologue about what happened to her husband who died in a car crash and appears above her bed in the netflix version you're going to see a lot of intercuts with hands, you know, hitting the record button on a cell phone and insert shots of Steven looking at her. But if you want to see this moment in all of its true agony and terror, just letting this actress deliver four minutes unbroken is kind of nice. Yeah, because in, I, I guess now, as we're calling it, then and now, he's going around Steve looking for stories for his ghost books. Like, th- this is kind of heartbreaking. He'll sit there and let this woman tell her story and, okay, I'll, I'm gonna have my camera to, you know, catch anything and sleep here for the night. And, and of course, he has a totally rational explanation. And again, this is setting up his characters. He's the one always saying, it's not ghosts, it's mental illness, there's a rational explanation. But then he's like, but hey, if I'll, I'll pay you for your story. Like, it does make him seem like a real slime ball. <laughs> yeah, I agree. The fact that he's still willing to like use her story after she debunks it. And it's like, that's not true. We can see that the, the reason why you're hearing honking is that some kids stole your stop sign outside at the crosswalk and you got, you know, a leak up here and your mind's playing tricks because you miss your husband. But I'm going to use this fake version because I can, you know, 
I can get rich this way. And so, yeah, he's really artistically compromised. I do like the heartbreak that the woman has because I couldn't tell is she really haunted or is she just a fangirl because she has all of his books on the shelf there and she's talking about how her husband her dead husband was such a big fan and all of this and I'm like so is she really being haunted or is she just saying that so that she can meet this author slash ghost hunter and then even if she was haunted we're gonna find out there are natural reasons for this not ghostly reasons i think in my reading of this she believes i don't see that that she is calculating to like oh i hope you put me in your book yeah she seems very disappointed when steve offers to buy her story she has read his book hill house and is like wow this is a man that really understands ghosts he'll understand what i'm going through And so to have him come to her house and be like, you know, none of that really happened and all of it can be explainable. He even has the Markaway kind of monologue about it's not supernatural, it's preternatural. Like everything just is science waiting to be discovered. So how disappointing. I mean, what a, you know... They talk about you don't want to meet your heroes and your celebrity crushes and what have you because, yeah, you find out they're not the people you wanted them to be. She wanted someone that understood her loss and could help her connect to Carl. And he says, ah, Carl ain't here, but I'll give you a check. (laughs) And we've seen how that played out in the past, too. When he wrote Hill House, we know in this first episode, it really created a rift between him and his older sister, Shirley. She doesn't forgive him for exploiting the family drama. And again, because this is entirely told from his point of view this episode, I don't quite understand her problem. Yeah, I mean, I think you could at least understand how, like, if you lived through a traumatic event and your mother died, watching your sibling maybe tell fanciful stories about that. I mean, it's worth pointing out, Shirley doesn't believe in ghosts either. So knowing that your brother doesn't believe in them, but is willing to turn your mom's death into profit, not everyone is going to be cool with that. What's interesting, though, about that flashback is we see that Stephen has married, met this woman named Lee. But when we cut to the present day, uh, Lee was so supportive back then. Now they're separated. She Another mystery that's created is the fact that she doesn't want to have much to do with him either. And we don't know why. Yeah, the whole hook of this movie isn't necessarily ghosts, but personal relationships and wondering why people have the moods they have and the traumas they have. Truthfully, this is a movie less about ghosts and more about sibling strife and familial relationships. I mean, Steve sets it up in this first episode, what a ghost is. It could be fear, it could be regret, all these emotions, but most of all a wish. Like, so yeah, this is a metaphor, but it's also a ghost story movie. And and so yeah, these ghosts are there expressing different emotions, different kinds of trauma. Metaphor. I guess that's what I was saying earlier about like horror movies don't have to be scary necessarily. You can be haunted about something that is more dramatic. Like it is about guilt and regret and... Oh, yeah. At middle age, this is much scarier than, you know, any Friday the 13th could be (laughs) having to reflect on my life. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly when you just see, and it's only just starting here in this first episode, but when you see these fresh-faced kids that have their whole future ahead of them, and then we cut to Luke now, and, you know, he's breaking into Steven's apartment and running away with his iPad and, and all this looking strung out, like, we just feel like, wow, like, it's so, uh, it hits me hard to think that he has been so... Uh, traumatized by whatever happened in that house. We haven't heard his story yet. He'll be episode four. But yeah, I'm already feeling for him. Yeah, we know something has awoken all these siblings because at 3.03 on the East Coast, the clock goes off and Shirley wakes up and then we see all the other siblings except Nell, who's been trying to call and get a hold of everyone. They all wake up at the same time. And Shirley says Nell is in the red room and we saw her doing that sound of music dance like earlier. I can't believe they retained that little bit. Oh yeah, you got to do that bit. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to all of those stories. I mean, these things play out and play out again. But from Steven's point of view, eh, I don't have time for Nell. I don't have time for this. He won't answer those phone calls. When he woke up in the middle of the night, it was to learn that, oh, there's someone honking outside because there's no stop sign to tell people not to drive through the intersection at the same time. And so, yeah, he's not thinking ghosts at all. This episode is called Steven Sees a Ghost. Up until the final moments of this episode, he hasn't seen a ghost. It's when he walks into that apartment after his brother has left that he sees Nell what are you doing here? What's going on? His dad calls and says, your sister committed suicide in Hill House. Boom. And I can't believe I didn't get that right away. Like, it's when the dad called and was like, I got to tell you about Nell. I'm like, oh, that's a ghost. She's dead. Like, I, I should have caught it sooner. Like, she just stands there. She never says anything. Maybe, yeah, we believe that she's in shock that Luke just kicked in the door and stole stuff. But I felt like I should have caught that a little quicker. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I didn't catch this and I'm kind of kicking myself for it. But because... He hadn't seen a ghost this whole time, and I didn't know this girl was dead until a moment later. Nope, no clue. I did not catch it. I did catch that he was willing to let his brother have the camera and the iPad, and yet he comes back into the room with the camera and the iPad. I don't... No, no, no. He said, I, here's 200 bucks. I need the iPad. You could keep the camera, but Luke gives both back to him. Yeah, but then Steven comes in with the camera. Yeah, because Luke gave that back to him, too. It shows it. We'll find out that he just needed money for a hotel room. That will come in episode four. And he's not even strung out. Like, again, what I love about this series is the way it plays expectations. You think you understand a situation. A few episodes later, when you see it from a different point of view, you go, ah, okay, I didn't understand this at all. You're right, because when we first meet Luke here, I, I'm thinking, oh, because this whole family all woke up at the same time. I'm like, oh, they're all like ghost hunters, just like Steven. Like, he needs that camera and iPad to do his ghost hunting stuff. <laughs> I just want to put out there, though... That, yes, the way this is going to play with it is each of these episodes is going to show us sometimes the exact same event, but from a different character's point of view. If you made a linear edit of this, I bet it would be, what, six hours? But so much less interesting. No, no, I'm just, I'm pointing out the amount of repetition. And I should just say this series drove home something for me. I am so sick of flashback story structure. I think it worked well with it when Stephen King did it. I feel like I'm just seeing it too much in the past few years of this. Here's something. We're going to flash back now to a moment in childhood that is really impacting the present. And we didn't tell you until it was the important moment. I'm, I'm finding it a trope that I'm not very tolerant of unless it has real specific purpose and impact. And I feel like this 
series, it does have real specific purpose and impact. Like, again, that's why I was blown away by the writing of this, because here's the thing. I started watching this and then I started telling my wife and girls about it. And so then they started watching it. So I caught some episodes twice when they were rewatching it. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That's leading up to that. Like, there's a lot of stuff like that's just intertwined here. And like, yeah, first watching, you more or less follow it. But I don't know, seeing some of these episodes a second time and seeing how they hint at things and then they come back and it, it expands a different way in another episode when they replay that. I don't know. I, I, I thought it was great and I appreciate this structure. I, I think this is how you tell this story about this family. I half agree. I think that some of it really did hit me where like, I'm like, okay, that was really clever. And sometimes it was, it felt obligatory. Yeah, it's it's, it's not always 100%, but it, it hits more than it misses. I also want to point out that you're saying you're tired of it now. It's 2021, but this did come out three years ago. It was more on the cusp of the early seasons of This Is Us when all of this was, was trendy. Now, maybe it is overplayed, but this was at the forefront of it. Before there was This Is Us, there was Lost, and Lost did this as well. So it's not like... This is us broke it. Oh, so this is the ghost of JJ haunting you. <laughs> Maybe so, but I liked how Lost did it, but I think that was because it was so novel to me. I'd never seen that before, before the way Lost did it. And now I've seen it so much. And yes, I'm reviewing this in 2021. I'm watching this for the first time in 2021, and this is frustrating me. The reason I talked about the time is because a lot of time I'm feeling that the inner palation of childhood and adult isn't as impactful as I think it should be for this structure. I mean, we just recently reviewed Shang-Chi. Same problem with that damn movie, I want to point out. Just too many flashbacks. Let me ask you, how did you watch this, Arnie? Did you, like, do this all in a day or two? Or Because for myself, I average two episodes a day. There's After one episode, I'm like, I gotta take a break. I'm too emotionally drained. But I took a week to watch this. I took my time, so maybe they were... I think maybe if you're watching one after the other after the other, then, yeah, there, you would see a lot of redundancy. Three days with breaks in between episodes... Yeah, I do think you need to take breaks. This is definitely not one to binge all at once. Your idea is like waking up at 9 a.m. and being done by supper time. I think that that probably, I don't know, I appreciated taking time off. And again, I've seen this three times now. I saw it in 2018. I saw it last week again, Netflix. And then I watched the episodes, you know, four episodes. It was episode one, episode five, episode six, and episode 10 are the ones that have been extended with commentary. I spent Friday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday watching this. And I did take breaks in between episodes just because, honestly, 10 hours is a long time to spend on your ass. <laughs> We're on to episode two, by the way. Open Caskets is all about Shirley, so named for the original author of Hill House, Shirley Jackson. I got that one. I was wondering about Stephen, but I knew Shirley. Yeah. Played by Elizabeth Reeser, who I guess Flanagan had worked with on the Ouija sequel. He tends to reuse his actors. Uh, she's also apparently a big part, or some part, of the Twilight universe. Yeah, she's the mother colon. She's she's the mother of the vampires. Like Stephen, she does not believe that there were ghosts in her childhood. But she's not really so worked up about that. She's mad that all of the shit falls on her. She's mad that she has to be fixing everyone's lives. And when we see her then... She's really the one that is trying to process death. She finds a box of kittens and learns how difficult it is to care for stray animals. Yeah, I did have to warn my girls about this episode. Though those kittens never look too real. They they look pretty much like a prop. Yes. Uh, it, was, it was hard for me to tell. when A couple times, 
I thought the kittens were real, and then it's like a CGI bug would crawl out of their mouth. I was fooled by a couple <laughs> of puppet kittens. But it was a heart tugger in Poltergeist when Carol Ann had to have her funeral for Tweety Bird. And here, I think that it is. If you've had a childhood where you had a pet, that day you have to put them down or bury them is something that stays with you. It is something I still think about Tramp. I'll never not think about Tramp. So there's no way to not think about this moment that you're processing mortality at her impressionable age and the fact that she wants to see the body the fact that you know she's learning this great speech about should she give a eulogy what's a eulogy when we die we all become stories really potent stuff really love this moment yeah you say she wants to see the body but are you talking about the kitten because when her mom dies she did not want to see that body okay (laughs) yes she's very interested you know they're putting her in a box and burying her in the backyard can i see him one more time yeah what I like, you know, you could say, oh, it's a ghost moment. It's a moment there for the scare where she thinks the kitten's alive and then the bug crawls out of her mouth. But I thought, again, really effective showing the trauma. Like, she wants this thing to come back to life because that's how you feel when a loved one dies. You don't want them to be dead. You want them to be back. And she's trying to convince herself. So, again, I, th- I thought a very powerful moment. Yeah, I think it's the reason why she doesn't want to see her mother later is because she associates with looking at the body with being horrified. Like, a bug crawling out. Like, yeah, I never want to do that again. And while this has some horror overtones because of the it's about death it's this moment where i'm realizing i'm watching yes this is us is the show that came to mind although there are so many others and now I'm angry. I never wanted to watch that show. And Stuart, you made me watch it, I guess. And I'm liking it. Just for a reference, I've seen a couple episodes here and there. I've lived in houses where people were big fans of it. It's okay. It's not necessarily my show. But it's not a genre that I would ever choose to watch. Drama? Family drama, specifically. Like, yeah. Gilmore Girls or Party of Five, you know. You didn't like Parenthood? I watched Parenthood the show for our review and wondered why people got into it. If you listen to that review of Parenthood, at the end I said, you know, because I kept watching it, I got into a few of the stories, but that's not a show I'd ever watch. It's not a genre I would ever choose to spend my time watching when there are other genres out there like horror, which I thought this was going to be, or sci-fi or comedy. I love comedies. One of the most terrifying things I've ever experienced happens next. In the past, when we have Shirley and Theo, they do the classic scene where the girls cower in the bed and the knocking comes. And Henry Thomas comes to comfort them. And he's like, don't worry, it's over now. It's over. Oh, my God. I can't even take that moment. Like, that moment is so scary to me. Like, I like have to look away from the screen. Terrifying. I'll agree with you. It's the best banging of Three Hauntings. Yeah, that, like, oof. I was, you just aren't expecting it to be a dream and that the parents are going to threaten you. And this is setting up early, kind of a shining theme as well. You can see why he got the Doctor Sleep gig, that your parents are kind of mysterious and scary to you when you're a kid. They're as as scary as a creaky old house at night. What are they capable of? Could they hurt you? Yeah, I just want to say, I liked that a lot. I've never liked the banging of the haunting. And here, I thought it actually really worked well. I'm not hating this. I'm just voicing that I'm also not loving it. I'm somewhere in the middle. 
Are, are you saying you're not loving it, that it's bad horror, or that you, it's not horror at all for you? It's not horror enough for me. It's a haunting. And again, what I would argue about what makes haunting unique in the horror genre is that it's about trauma. And if you're not moved, I talk about being moved about Nell in the 63 one, if you don't have feelings for the characters and, and feel their tragic ends... And I think it's true of Sixth Sense and, you know, a, a lot of beloved haunting movies is that there's attempts to make you cry always. There is melodrama as well as scares. And perhaps it's a ratio thing, but I did like The Sixth Sense a lot. I did not have any empathy for Nell in The Haunting 63. Yeah, no, we, well covered. We don't have to go back to that. I'm just saying in general, if you're watching a haunted house movie and it's not asking you to feel something, feel the tragedy of what the characters are going through. Probably not one of the best examples of the genre. Personal opinion. And so, all right, so the last thing we see about Olivia here in the past is that, yes, we know this mom is going to die. Maybe the father killed her. Maybe it was the house. She doesn't want to even look at the body. Like, she's, like, so terrified about all her siblings are going down the aisle and looking at mom in the casket. She can't do it until the kindly mortician, played by Mike Flanagan, the director of this piece, uh, walks her down there and she realizes that dead can be fixed. That you can fix people in death in ways that you couldn't in life. Yeah, in this I can fix it thing, we're going to find out her dad thought the same thing. Like, this is going to be a motto of some of these siblings, where it's carried it on. We'll talk about heredity and, you know, passing on mental illness and whatnot, but this is something she shares with her dad. That was one of his mottos as well. Yeah, we'll get there in the now. It's what we see is what was done for her in childhood. She now does as an adult, as a mortician, that she now comforts little kids who, for reasons, don't want to see relatives in caskets. This is what Hill House did for her. Each story, each of the first five episodes, is what Hill House did to people as an adult. Stephen got rich as a writer, even though he doesn't believe what happened there was paranormal. And she became compassionate for fixing the dead. And it's, you know, on one hand, it allows her to feel like a good person. But on the other hand, she's going bankrupt. We will see that her husband, Kevin, is the bookkeeper. And all this charity she's doing, all these freebies she's giving out, is making them getting closer and closer into the red. And it's not just the corpses. It should be said that she's the one writing the checks for Luke when he's going into the rehab. You know, he's got to go to the place with the horse riding and what have you. <laughs> yes, $6,000 a month without insurance. Mm -hmm. I think that's also where, like, when you look at the way that that administrator was not willing to work with them on the price and all that, like, that was a teachable moment for her to be like, you know what? I, when I'm in a position to help people, I'm going to, you know, cut rates. I do want to, if a family's in crisis, you don't show them a price tag. You, you work with them. Yeah, again, going back to the way they use these flashbacks, there's a family dynamic here. The whole, all the siblings are there. Nell's super excited about the horseback riding. And yeah, as we go to different flashbacks in different time, we'll see different states of this family. So again, I think it's really useful. And maybe if you tr try to binge it too fast or something, you might miss things. Like, it, it just let things dwell on you. And, and it really works. Like, just seeing this family in the different states as they go along this very twisted timeline. Yeah, 2012 is a really important year because it was the year that Stephen finally published his book and went from poor to rich and it was the year that Theo is going to you know cash her check and pursue her career like this is the moment where the family went from kind of being together to really being scattered for the 2008 year let me ask you just looking at this holistically though 
Who are your favorite and least favorite of the siblings? I'll say for me, my favorite ends up being Theo and my least favorite, the one I just find least interesting after this episode. I like the mortician stuff, but after this episode, I could care less about Shirley and her later adultery tales and her money woes. I like every single character. There's nobody that I dislike. But if you have to rank them. Well, no. I mean, I want to be clear. I do not think that there's any story here that's not worth telling. And it works as a whole piece. Who do I connect with the most? Is that maybe your question? Whose plight do I feel? I guess maybe maybe Shirley. Honestly, as someone that can be a fixer in my own family, I know what resentment is when you feel like you've tried your best and your siblings fail you. I mean, you just people don't do what you work so hard for them to do. I would say my favorite is probably Luke. Like, I, I feel so bad for him as a kid. And yeah, seeing the trauma that this house has taken on him, it really sells. Like, this house has just screwed up this entire family. And, and yeah, I was really into his story. Luke's my second favorite. Yeah, Luke hurts here in this flashback because we know he's not going to be clean. We know from the Steven episode, he was stealing things and looked like he was living on the street. Yeah, they mentioned that he's 90 days clean, so you know he has some kind of problem. Even though she's going to write a check for $6,000 a month, it's all going to go for nothing. It ain't going to stick. Yeah, later on, Luke will even say it took him 10 years to get 90 days clean. So this first try, yeah, a waste of money. Plus, she's like like having Theo like live in her coach house or something. And we'll get into Theo in the next episode. But my point is that she definitely is carrying most of her family and not finding it very rewarding at this point. And so it's really an interesting moment when she finds out that Nell is dead and she's going to be the one to exhume the body and and make her ready for open casket. That is rough. You know, I do know I mentioned my father-in-law was a mortician. He actually did do a family member. And it's like, I can't even... Yeah, I have a cousin that's a mortician, and he did our grandfather. I, I never talked to him to see if it was tough for him or not, but yeah, he did do a family member. Yeah, I and again, on one hand, like, she's struggling when she unzips it, but later, like, she'll be on the phone with Steven, and her hands are, like, way deep into, like, the chest cavity. Like, it's, she's able to go there, and I think it's her pride, really. Like, she's proud to be someone that can do the hard work that nobody else can. It's created a certain kind of vanity for her that will be challenged, and that is what her adultery story will be about but we'll get there when we get there we don't know much about that here we've seen maybe one haunting like one flash where she's looked around the corner and she's seen a guy like drinking from a martini glass and we'll find out who he is in the last episode was it just me or when she was pulling out the guts were they already in like a bag like when you buy a turkey and the giblets are pre-bagged yeah she calls that out that they were already bagged up that's what I thought. I'm like, who? That was the weirdest part to me was seeing, seeing all the organs just pre-bagged. I guess they must have done an autopsy. They do that for virtually every death. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that it was suicide. And again, we're recognizing a parallel between mother and daughter. Yeah, they really draw that out at the end of this one. <laughs> And their kids speak in here, too, while she's performing this work, and it's sort of an interesting moment. In the past, we noticed that the parents lied to her about the kittens. You know, they took them away, and they're like, oh, they're in a better place now. No, they all died. But she's not going to be that kind of parent. Tell me what you want to know about death, and I'm just going to tell you. I'll tell you what I'm doing with your Aunt Nell, if you really want to know. And so, again, you see her trying to fix the parenting that she felt she didn't get growing up. 
but that mom is haunting her. Every episode seems to end on a scare moment. And the scare moment here is that mom suddenly materializes on the slab next to Nell. And she's holding that cat box and tormenting her. There seems to be a message here about coming home. Yeah, we saw earlier one of those flashbacks. Okay, kid, you could go outside and play. But when I flash the light twice, the porch light twice, you got to come in. And here we see a little model of a house. And we see a porch light going off two times on it, just like the mom said. So, yeah, of course I associate whatever's happening with this little model house and the light has to be with the mom. Yeah. We know that Hill House is where Nell died. We know Hill House is where the mom committed suicide. And the fact that it seems to be calling all these kids home feels like a threat. Next episode, Touch, which is, of course, the Theo episode. We all know Theo. She is, yeah, maybe you like her the best, Arnie, because she was the most fun in the 1963 movie. <laughs> she's an X-Men. <laughs> she is an X-Men. I mean, she's kind of rogue with the gloves, but also, truthfully, yeah. it's just her attitude. <laughs> she's the one who is like the I don't give a fuck of the family, you know? Uh, now we know which one you are in the family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She is the least tormented and the least going to put up with other people's drama. She's going to go off, do her own thing, have one night stands and not get emotionally attached. And that's a good thing? Not being able to get emotionally attached? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's dig in on that because you're right. Yes, that is. she's someone that I would say can't stand to look at the past, is afraid to get close and to look at things and be intimate. And so she's trying to live in the surface. Her response to Hill House, we'll see in an early scene, she gets the classic moment of something was holding my hand in the dark, is that she doesn't want to be touched. That's why it's the name of the episode. But it's also, doesn't she get those memories if she's touched? It's not just that someone was holding her hand. Yeah, if she touches someone, she could like, yeah, tell what's going to happen to them or get some kind of premonition. She's a sense medium, which I don't know if was that was clear in any previous no. movie version. No. It was very clear in the novel. <laughs> if you read the Shirley Jackson novel, they go into that specifically. And if you read or see Hell House, which is the Richard Matheson quasi-rebuttal of Hill House, the psychic character in that one. We reviewed that, right? Yes, right, exactly. In that one, it would work the same principle. She touched things and she, yeah, could be there. Like Dead Zone, you know, Christopher Walken. Yeah, touching the objects, but here she's touching the people. But it's not just people. It could be objects because we see her, and I thought this was really clever now kind of knowing the tropes of Hill House, you know, that, okay, this character's psychic and she'll touch that box and go, oh, there, there's something in there. And of course, there's a bottle of wine and like she'll do that throughout. I'm like, oh, that's clever. They're, they're hinting. Maybe she is psychic. Oh, you're right. Oh my God. So now it's it meets the shining meets the dead zone. I mean, we can play the game of, of Stephen King references, but I'm really not doing that. When I'm watching this piece, I'm not sitting there thinking about other horror movies that I've seen. I, I feel like I'm invested in this drama. And Katie Seagal, just so you know, is Mike Flanagan's favorite. He married her. Uh, she is the star of his home invasion movie, Hush. And I think he's put her in every movie he's had since. He loves working with Kate and, uh, yeah. It's nice we have a new Mia Jovovich in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But a better actress than that, I will say. I feel like, yeah, she's pretty good here. They've retained what I liked about Theo in the other versions uh, when we see her in the present. But in the past, she's kind of the one that she's not really seeing ghosts. It's more like things 
just touching anything scares her. You know what I mean? Like she can't even think about the haunting. It's more about like, I don't want to get close to things because if I do, I'm going to experience something bad. And that becomes pretty clear when she sends Luke down in the dumbwaiter. Yeah, you know this is going to go wrong. He's supposed to go up, <laughs> the dumbwaiter goes down, and yeah, of course there's going to be a ghost in there. What, what I found interesting, is, and of course he does, he sees some corpse crawling at him and his parents are able to get him to come up. That was a fun horror moment for me. That was like old school man in the skeleton outfit funny. Oh, I'm telling you, Luke gets like the scariest stuff happening to him as a kid. I know, do not doubt why he ends up doing heroin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, who wouldn't want to do this? If I were a kid and there was a, like a kid elevator, like it only holds 200 pounds, only I can get in there. Like, of course you would go down there. Of course you would do what he's doing here. But trauma, for sure. He's going to come back up, clothes ripped. And a key development here, he's going to tell people what he saw, and no one will believe him. And that is really his life story. No one will ever believe Luke. Only Theo believes him because when she touches him, she knows it's true. Yeah, they're going to find out. And again, I'm, I'm looking at all these little mysteries they're hinting at. Oh, there's no nothing on the blueprints for this house, uh, for a basement. And then they'll find it. Theo, thanks to her, you know, measuring some steps out and finding this door. And oh, it's a bootlegger seller. That's why it wasn't on the print. So here's the thing with this film. It, it, it's the haunting of Hill House. There's a lot of ghosts there. Like, I don't think we're ever going to know the full history. Maybe that's on purpose. Maybe that's the fun of this. There's just so much history in this house we'll never know. But I feel like they do so like, oh, yeah, there's a bootlegger thing and there's a body in there for some reason. And then there's this and there's a body there for some reason. It feels like there is so much history here. Like you, you can never really sum up what all these ghosts are. So they just keep hitting at different ones throughout. I think in my multiple viewings, I'm starting to see those stories. But I agree with you, Jacob. If you're here to learn about who built this house, how it was born bad, like what the first murder was, not here. No, they'll kind of get at it a little bit at the end, but that's not the point. This is, again, family drama. If it's not about the family, it's not about the movie. Yeah, it's it's not finding about a missing ledger though. They like Theo will find a ledger too. She that's how they know it's a bootleg basement. Like I'm like, oh, but thank goodness it's not we're kidnapping kids because we want to fill the halls with laughter. Right. And so mom, who's an influence on everybody because she was this figure that they've only seen in the past. They have no present history with her. They'll never see her beyond Hill House. She has empathy for Theo. Like she basically sits her down and says, you know, the women in this family are sensitive. Shine. Yeah, they all have the shining. Exactly. We all <laughs> have some version of what you're going through. I have my migraines. Your sister talks in her sleep. Nell, when she walked into the house, said it's really loud in here and it was quiet. And you touch things and you feel intensely. So wear these gloves. The message she's going to get from mom, the last message she ever gets is don't let anything ever touch you. And here's the thing, because I think this movie is 100% psychological and 100% ghost, I'm trying to figure out, like, what is the mom getting at with this speech? Because is she talking about mental illness? Oh, you're, you know, you're sensitive. Oh, here's these gloves. Maybe, you know, people have sensitivity to touch if they're on the spectrum sometimes. And and so, like, yeah, there is this. Are, are you talking about mental illness or are we really talking about ghosts and Superman X-Men powers going on here? Yeah, I think it can read either way you want to see it. And that's kind of nice about this version is that. If you want to be a Steven, there's psychological readings. And if you want to be a Luke, then yeah, it's all the ghosts. 
But it's notable that you know, like in this moment, she touches her mom and she has this scary like premonition that her mom's going to have like half her face smashed in. And then later on that night, when dad's clearing everybody out of the house, she he touches her and she has a sense memory of him throwing mom against a wall. You realize that Theo blames dad for killing her. You realize that the reason why she doesn't talk to him in adulthood is because she holds him literally accountable for their mom dying. Yeah, and and again, I, I'm like, well, that's part of the mystery. Maybe we'll see what the full context is at some point in this, I'm sure. But yeah, that that is to, again, to explain this trauma with the family. None of them seem to really get along with his dad who's living by himself in Florida. Just like Scatman in The Shining. It's, <laughs> yeah. Arnie, you're right. It's, it's all coming together. Glad somebody else is seeing it. <laughs> As I talk my way through. I mean, I see it. <laughs> I, it's just not the only thing that I've seen. I'm not here to deconstruct it as a series of, of Stephen King ripoffs. I'm being facetious, though. The problem is it is, though. <laughs> if that's what you're looking for, I guess it is. If Mike Flanagan is directing, I'm not looking for it. It's slapping me in the face. Okay, I, I do not experience it that way. And if what I'm hearing is correct, you're finding the movie lesser for it. Yeah, it is. If it's just a mashup of King, then that lacks originality. Give King at least a co-writing credit. No, but this has all like the drama and family moments that I maybe are in those books, but I never get them out of the, those corny films that most of them become. Thank you. Can we just call it out? Stephen King's not that good of a writer. He wishes he could have the emotional reach that this series is pulling here. Like, maybe it's a ripoff of It if that's what you see. There's no scene in It as good as the scenes in this series. I would say It Chapter 1 beats this series to hell and back. Okay, you, you can say that. You're absolutely right. It's within your right to say that. But I'm not really sure why, dramatically, you would feel that way. But dramatically, I feel like... The death of the little brother in It Chapter 1 is more sad than anything I feel with kittens in this movie. Okay, I didn't cry in it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave it there. Oh man, just, just wait till we get to episode five. That's the one I had to take a break during. Didn't cry in it. I cried watching this series multiple times. Now, how does a person like Theo wind up? What does she do? We saw in 63, she was some kind of diva. And I think even in 1999, Catherine Zeta-Jones was some kind of celebutante. But that is not the path of this Theo. She has taken the blood money. She took the profits that Stephen was offering from the book sale. She got her degree in child psychology. And her way of making the world better is to touch children, just on the hand, handshake, and be able to diagnose what they need. And things only get complicated when she meets other children like her. Yeah, this feels, again, like this could be the TV series, right? She goes solving different. And again, this is why I'm thinking Luke maybe stole that camera and iPad to do ghost hunting <laughs> stuff. Because it feels like this trauma has all led him to do ghost stuff. Like she's dealing with this kid who sees Mr. Smiley and, you know, she's going to go into the house and figure it all out. Oh, it's it's the knots on the wood that look like this scary face that she's looking at as she's being molested. Like, yeah, this feels like a very X-Men episode. <laughs> X-Files, too, maybe. Like, it's investigative in that way. It's a procedural. Sure, yes. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, because of the way that this has been cut and all, it might, if you assembled it in chronologically, you might feel like this is kind of a reductive moment in, you know, child molestation. But because it's cut back and forth, and we've seen her own childhood intermixed with this other child, 
it feels meaningful that she was able to save this child and ensure that, you know, she's going to wait there until child services arrives to drag the foster father away. Like you can see that again, she's holding her father to blame. I'm going to get him for what he did. But while that makes her good at her job, it makes her personal life a mess. And the actress did mention that it was very important to keep the bisexual thing going, that it was an important part of the book. She wanted to have it as a part of her character here. And we see that she is having trouble maintaining her promiscuous life. She keeps bringing Trish Park back into her life, even though she has a lot of resentment for her. Yeah, and I think that's what this the show is really effective for me is we get one image of what we think these adults are like. Oh, Theo's this jerk just wanting one night stand. She's like a frat dude, as Shirley says to her. And then, we, oh, it's because she could feel things when she touches people. And like, that's got to make sex super weird, especially if that's like a really awful person that you're with. Like, And yet I think it would actually make it better. Oh, how could it not be? How could she not know every way to touch you that would satisfy you? <laughs> Okay, so you're looking at the good side. See, I immediately go to the dark side, like you're seeing all their darkest secrets. Yes, yes. Okay, can I go both ways with that? Sometimes knowing their darkest secrets while you do it could be hotter. Well, here's what I would say. For Trish, this is all a turn on. Like, the reason why she keeps hanging out and, like, coming to her sister's funeral and all that is not because Theo is nice to her. Theo is really bitchy and dismissive. That was stalkerish. Yeah, that was so weird when she showed up to the funeral. But damn, the sex has to be really, really good here. I'll put up with it because you're so <laughs> good in bed. You know how to touch me. And yeah, maybe slowly but surely I'm chipping your defenses down and you're going to let me know what's going on with you. But for Theo, yeah, I think that it, it can be really hard for her to get close to anyone. That she's learned that intimacy equals terror. Yeah, I mean, to my point, it's just I, I come to empathize with her. I understand now why she's that way. It's very effective storytelling. Mm-hmm. I agree. I actually, again, this is why she's my favorite character in this, is I think she's the one who's developed in the way that gives me the most empathy. Yeah. And her final scare moment, such as it were, is that, yeah, she doesn't want to deal with her sister being dead. She doesn't want to see the body, but she just has to know, like, was it a suicide? What happened to her? I'm going to just go in there and touch a real brief, see what happens. Whatever she felt, it sends her in the arms of Trish again. Like, you know, I, you could tell she didn't want to call Trish, but like she needs the distraction from whatever happened to Nell. And that mystery will build. But we're going to find out later she saw nothing, right? And that's what disturbed her? She was filled with that sense of nothingness. Yeah, I don't think it's that she saw nothing. It's that she felt death. And that's, you know, some would even argue that, that that's why we have sex, is to feel alive and to, to not feel death. Ah, but not to the French. Episode four, we're on to Luke, the twin thing. He is the older half, the boy half, the boy that no one would believe. This was the one I was waiting for the most because of the heroin addiction bit that had been teased throughout by this point. I know the pattern. I'm on, what, day two of watching this and really wondering his story because addicts have usually very interesting stories. And the fact that this is where the trauma took him and stealing from the family. I was looking forward to when we'd get to him. I would, he's four out of five. Oliver Jackson Cohen, by the way, we've recently seen him. If you've seen Invisible Man. Yep. Terrorizing Elizabeth Moss. He is the title character. Oh, I, I didn't see him in that. 
Yeah, he's mostly invisible in it. <laughs> I guess that's true. You don't you miss a lot of his work in that, but uh yeah, he is working with Flanagan for the first time, but not the last time. And yes, as a child, he was very traumatized by that dumb waiter ride into the bootlegger camp and is drawing things, is showing his dad what his dad always telling him. Big boys know the difference between real and imaginary. You have to learn not to believe this stuff. Yeah, maybe this is why Luke's my favorite, because I get so upset. Luke wants this old, like, bowler-type hat, and the dad's like, okay, but it's only for big boys, and you don't know what that means. No imaginary. I'm like, you're an asshole. You are an asshole. Like, he's a kid. Let him have his life. Like, believe him. Particularly since we'll find out his quote-unquote imaginary friend is real. Like, she's real flesh and blood. They save it all the way to the end. But the poor guy really knew what he was talking about when he was meeting a girl in the woods. I have to say, the most frightening moment for me in all of this is the ghost he's going to see in this as a child. Like, yes, we do think Abigail at this point is a ghost, but there's another one that he, he got that bowler hat and the owner wants it back. And it's like, you hear that knocking, he peeks out the door and it's this really tall guy. That's like floating like three inches off the floor, but his canes on the ground. And there's, there's something so unsettling about that image. Like it terrified me. I'm like, Oh, this is scary. I'm watching this alone by myself in a dark living room. Like this stuff frightened me. I'm like, I don't like how this looks. Oh yeah. Terrifying stuff. I mean, all of these, when we get every episode I feel like there's something that like wow deeply scary for if you are not in in this for the family drama it is still playing as horror every episode they were not going to let that lapse and become this is us this is a terrifying moment with the floating cane man yeah for sure I do like the ghost design terrifying nothing in this ever scares me. Sometimes I'll get moved, but nothing gets scared. When the ghost goes to the door, and then, of course, he's going to turn around and slowly come to the bed. Ugh, I didn't like it. It scared me. Yeah, he had his hat. He was all, you know, going to get out of there. Yeah, you thought you got your hat. Just leave him alone. Leave the poor kid alone. Yeah, but Luke makes that noise, and he gets caught. And so, you know, Luke comes up with a trick. What's kind of neat about this is that he's, his coping mechanism is the number seven. And he gets the idea that seven little green army men or seven rocks, the number of units in his family are a source of strength, and that he could use that in some way to protect himself from this tall man, and that maybe his twin sister could use it to protect herself from Bitneck Lady, you know, like, it's interesting that he's still using it when we jump to the present day and he's trying to be clean and sober. Oh, I, I thought this was going to be like, again, we're going to get a big confrontation with the house at the end of this. And yes, I thought this was going to be the way, like somehow they're going to, I'm one, I'm two, <laughs> like they're going to count to seven. Like I, I thought this was going to set up the big heroic moment. No, it's just, it's just a something that's messed him up his whole life. And he's always counting to seven. Well, again, it represents his, I mean, I think literally what it's saying is like the way that I get through and a way a lot of addicts get through is their support system. If that is their family, if they're lucky enough to have that. That is what is guiding him in these dark moments. And when we see him in the present day, it's worth pointing out, we start in July 2018. This is his first day, like, completely sober. He will never, he will never have a relapse. Yeah, he will be sober from this point forward, even though no one's going to believe that. Everyone is going to believe that he's back on junk. But he is clean when we see him hear this 
horrifying story about a blind vet who was so traumatized about watching a girl's eyes melt that he ended up taking sewing needles to himself. And, and I thought that was a really clever way. It's not just about Hill House, but things that could haunt you. Like Again, I, I appreciate the writing with this. It's much better than I was expecting it to be. Yeah, it feels like dramatically earned. Like, yeah, that is why t- people take drugs, right? To forget. Because I don't want to see those things in my head. Because I'm haunted by things that have happened in my life. And there's a lot of reasons people take drugs. And there's a lot of people who want to forget and don't take drugs. I liking the story, though. The thing with the poking out the eyes. One of the more traumatic moments of the series for me. <laughs> Right. And so Luke has, the reason why he's able to stay clean is he has a new Abigail, right? There's this girl that like he and him just click, Joey, and she's a junkie too. She's got about nine more months on him than he does. And, you know, he's so excited that 30 days later he gets a day pass and he brings her to Steven. And, you know, you can just, it's a heartbreaking moment because you can just feel him needing Steven to encourage him. And all Steven can do is not believe him. Yeah, which, again, that's heartbreaking, but it is also one of the worst, like, we'll see Joey give this speech about what insanity is, and I'm like, okay, this feels too TV for me, like, this this isn't how the people talk, like, it, it's a moment that really took me out when I was really into the dysfunctionality of this dinner get-together. Well, Steven's not totally wrong. It's worth pointing out she is slick, and she is going to relapse. Yeah. And so, like, maybe he's right to say, be careful around her. You're getting attached to someone that could pull you back into the drug scene. She's using the clean speech to, a little bit too freely here. She's not practicing what she preaches. The way he puts it, and it's awfully blunt and hurtful, just because someone is a good person doesn't mean they won't burn you. Of course, he's talking about Luke. And that's, I think, when we catch up in the present to that moment where they met in the first episode and he's getting that $200. But now we know it's to help Joey. She's relapsed. She ran away from rehab, got some heroin, and he wants to take her to a hotel to get clean. At the same moment that his sister died, like this girl like yeah. flies the coop. And yeah, he feels like he's got to go help her. And he thinks that his twin is is supportive of that. Like, Nell appears to him and says, go. So, okay, that must mean that I'm going to leave this rehab facility and go find her on the street. And the other thing is they set up, because it's a twin thing, like, they might feel each other, you know, one gets hurt, the other one feels it. And he's around this time, he is rubbing his neck and complaining about his neck being sore. Yeah. He even woke up that way holding his neck. And again, to everyone else, it looks like, oh, you just took junk. You're shaking. Yeah, he's getting really cold. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you're cold. All of this stuff. You're just a junkie. But the truth is that he can just feel that death of his sister. And that's how psychically connected they are. And yeah, he is struggling in that alone. It took me a while to realize why he was so cold when he was like going with the homeless people to the fires i was like but you're not homeless he's looking for his junkie friend but ends up getting really cold it was like when i figured it out i did think that was a nice touch a good level of detail that they're putting into the characters yeah they again they always give you rational reasons because we'll find out and i've like when Joey's like, oh, I got to go pee in the alley. I'm like, don't do it. 
that she's going to steal your money, dude, and go use it for heroin. And she does. And we'll see like Luke get mugged and his shoes and jacket get taken away. And he's saying his arms and legs feel stiff. Like they're giving rational reasons too. And that's what I think is really clever about this. It could be a ghost. He could be because Nell is dead. And so he's starting to stiffen up like Nell is and feel cold like Nell is. Or it could be he just got mugged and is really sore and has no jacket or shoes. Yeah. Either way, that tall man has found him. And like everywhere he goes, I mean, again, it's the temptation to want to use. It's what made him want to use the same way that the blind vet is still wanting to, you know, block out the horrific vision. Like you want something to soothe you. And if that's drugs, again, the the fact that he stays clean is rather admirable because I'm not sure how many people wouldn't crack seeing that tall ghost floating at them on the basketball court. Well, it's not floating now. Now, well, yeah, there is that moment where it's obviously like a dummy on a dolly that they're pulling. But yeah, it's not tall like it was before. He'll turn around and he just sees the back of it. But it's got that hat. And so you know it's that ghost. And briefly, it becomes his mother as well. Yeah, telling him to come home. That that house wants them. Mm-hmm. But she turns into a car. Steven has found him. He's not coming back to the rehab. He is coming back with... Steven, because your twin committed suicide, what's interesting is that Luke knows that can't be true. No one will believe Luke, but Luke knows it was not suicide. It was the house. And we'll have to debate whether or not it was, because it sort of was. Well, yes, I agree. It depends on whether you want to look at this in terms of supernatural or in terms of psychological. But we are there. We are at the fifth episode. If there's an episode that you remember 10 years from now, when I say, remember that Hill House series, you're going to think about the bent neck lady. This is the one I had to take a break after. Usually I was doing two a day. I got to this one. I'm like, nope, got to take the rest of the day off. Yep, for sure. And just want to point out Victoria Pedretti, her first acting gig ever. Wow. She had never worked before. Like, they just found her, and of course, they screen tested her with the other sisters. She kind of looks like them. And for the director, Nell's really important. If you think about it, Nell is usually the center character. If you read the novel, if you see either of the two previous movies, Nell is the person that you're, I mean, maybe not you, Arnie, but Nell is usually the person that people are rooting for and really invested in. And so getting Nell right was very important to this director, going with an unknown. I think he got a good one. I think that she is believably traumatized in a different way than her twin. She doesn't turn to drugs, or at least those kinds of drugs. It's more like psychotropic medicine to try and soothe what may be growing mental illness. I'd never figured out in that first episode that Nell was a ghost in the corner. But in this episode, I did figure out Nell was going to be her own broken neck woman. Oh, I didn't get that till the final reveal. Yeah, I didn't get into the final reveal, but in the early years, you know, she had didn't have trouble sleeping until she came to Hill House. Her first night, she sees this bent neck lady, and from that point on, it becomes this nightmare figure that keeps coming to her. Doesn't ever attack her, doesn't even threaten her, but there's something very, I don't know, J-horror about a stringy-haired woman with a bent neck that is you know, standing at your bedside. And and there's something deeply threatening about it that Nell can't articulate that her parents just, you know, they just treat it like a nightmare. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it cannot be an accident, that shot that looks like the ring girl hanging over the bed. <laughs> but there's also this really cruel moment from the mom. 
in this one. And again, I because I've watched the previous hauntings, I, I'm really appreciating the way they're bringing the different elements in here. And this is where we're going to get the red writing on the wall. Come home, Nell. And at first you just see Nell and the mom's like super upset. Like, I figure you're tearing this wall down anyway, or at least repainting it. Like you're trying to flip this house. Why are you so upset over this? And then I'm like, is she bipolar? There's got to be some kind of mental thing going on because she seems like such a nice, calm mother. Like early in that first episode when we meet Mrs. Dudley and she's like, do you know your gospels to Steve? Like the mom swoops in and defends him. He knows every religion apparently. So it was the first moment I think we ever saw her like being cruel. It did seem whiplash inducing, no pun intended with neck injuries there. But I didn't understand why she was that upset about the, I mean, that wallpaper has to come down anyway. Yeah, we'll understand, putting in the context of the later episodes, that by this point, it is looking like they may not get their investment back. That Keep in mind, the reason why they got Hill House was that they could flip it, and she has a blueprint. She has designed a dream house that they can live in. That's the model. Their forever house. Yeah, the forever house is what she really wants to live in. And Hill House is just a way station on the way there. The fact that she's going to basically never get there and, and be a ghost in this Hill House. Yeah, it starts here with her migraines. We'll find out that she has these maybe, you know, psychic phenomenon, maybe mental illness. But yeah, she can be en- enraged. Yeah, she says she sees colors. I don't know. I don't know. I've never had a headache that made me see colors or I, I don't know if there's some kind of mental illness that that plays into i get migraines the very first time i had a migraine i saw like tunnel vision colors and had to have like a cat scan an mri people thought i was having a stroke it turned out it was my very first migraine wow okay i guess i've never had a migraine (laughs) something to look forward to (laughs) yeah it's, it's in my family i'm very familiar with migraine behavior i don't have them personally but this felt authentic. And fortunately, none of my family members have accused me of writing on the wall <laughs> when I didn't do it. Let me put it that way. And Theo is there, too. It's worth pointing out. She uses her sense touch. She knows that her sister is innocent, but can't convince the mother either. And then the other thing we see in this past year is that when dad returns, you know, they, he whisked them away to get them out of the house for reasons, went back to the house for the mom and came back covered in blood. Uh, he's going to give her a pocket watch and he's going to basically, they're going to stay in contact. Unlike all the other children, he and Nell in this moment establish a bond that he's going to keep talking to her throughout the next 24 years. Yeah, it's the one kid that still has a relationship with the father because in retrospect, she knows the true story. Right. Now, maybe this nightmare is only sleep paralysis. When we jump into the present, what we clearly see is that, yeah, there, this is a condition. This is not a boogeyman. No, sleep paralysis is very real. Like my grandmother suffered from it. And, but to her, it was Satan trying to. <laughs> take her soul because she would see demons and then finally be able to call out to Jesus Christ and it, the demon would go away because she would just wake up and I had it a lot when I was a kid and it's gray alien scared the hell out of me because that's how I interpret it I was never I would never say I was abducted but I'd wake up I couldn't move and I'd see aliens standing around me oh weird like it, it's very creepy and then it was never as dramatic as they portrayed in here where it would last minutes but it would just be maybe 10 seconds it is the most terrifying 10 seconds of your life though oh wow that's strange i've had it a few times and it is true you do experience it in your neck that is where i remember where i mm. felt like I, I would do anything to be able to move my neck right now like it did feel like i had you know 
become a quadriplegic, really. And it's just, yeah, it's exactly as they explain here, the sleep technician. It's just your body hasn't caught up with your mind waking up. And yeah, fortunately only a couple of times, but truly a horrifying sensation. And this is a man that can help Nell deal with it because, well, maybe he's just a nice guy that thinks she's cute and is going to marry her. The one callback to haunting 1999, I feel like, where it was all a sleep study. Seems a little beneficial for her to marry the one man who can help her get through these things. But he, it's a sweet whirlwind romance between them. I will say I like that. Well, he's not even the doctor. He's just the technician. It took me a second to get like what was going on because we did see her a wedding scene earlier and that she was marrying a black man. And then I'm like, oh, OK, this is OK. Here is her story. This is how they fell in love. And because we don't even know at this point if that wedding went through because they couldn't find the bridesmaids because Theo's, you know, was getting it on with them. Yeah, we know the wedding mostly as the coming out of Theo to her siblings. They had no idea that she preferred women. That seemed very late. Like you wouldn't catch your siblings. I don't know. If I had a sibling... Theo probably doesn't mess with anybody. I mean, I think her promiscuousness is relatively recent. My guess is that she stayed away from all of them and didn't really connect with anybody for a while. And then, yeah, now she's starting to allow herself to have sexual relationships, but not long-standing ones, you know, just one-night stands. I mean, the saddest thing with this wedding is she wants Luke, her twin brother. It's a twin thing. He, she wants him to show up. He does, but surely doesn't want him there. And she pays him off. Go, you know, go be a junkie somewhere else. Don't ruin your sister's day. And I understand that, but I see both sides and it was kind of sad. It's cruel. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly, on one hand, Nell is so connected to Luke that she wants him there. Like, I mean, like she'll talk about it. And in fact, she's going to convince her husband, we need to move to L.A. because that's where he's going to be to get the therapy that he needs. And God bless this sleep technician for just up and brooding his life and, and going along with it. But yes, Nell is deeply attached. They do sleep studies out in L.A. <laughs> Probably more of them. <laughs> Yeah, she's deeply attached to her twin, and at the same time, Shirley's right. At some point, you have to cut people out, and if this guy was going to show up high and take all the attention away from Nell and ruin the day, best he not be there. But it is the bent neck lady that comes back. When they move to L.A. eight months later, she has another sleep paralysis episode, and it manifests itself in the J-horror girl killing her husband. Or at least that's how she interprets it. Yeah, it does play out that way. She's, you know, can't move again because of the sleep paralysis. Arthur gets up to turn on the light and just like groans and falls over dead. It, it could be, yeah, like she killed him with, I don't know, psychic powers or something. Mm-hmm. To me, this was almost like not quite as sad, but as sad as the opening of Up, where you have the entire romance that seems really sweet. Yeah, she was so happy with him. Yeah, she was, and he was so caring, and the way he proposed at New Year's 2015, and then he, he just has an aneurysm and dies like that. I mean, it was all so <laughs> compressed, it did feel like a montage of sadness. Yeah, I think that this episode is very skillful. We've had very little of Nell. She's only been important in the sense that we know she's going to die. Now that we're finding out the the rest of her story and who she is, I do feel like in the same way that you would love the naivete of the previous Nells. Like there's something about her because she is so childlike, really, like that you just feel for her. You want her to be happy terribly. And the fact that she loses her husband in this way and again, maybe has to face again with a Hill House specter or some kind of mental illness. Either way, 
it's it's a heartbreaker. And we've got the dramatic irony of we know she's going to commit suicide. So watching all of this and knowing it's going to break her and break her neck is something that makes it hit all the harder. This is a great episode. And it's Luke that kind of kills her, right? Like, here's the deal. They're so interconnected that if he's going to go to rehab and be successful at kicking drugs, she can't take her psychotropic drugs anymore. She has to go off her meds in order for him to stay off his meds. And so we have this scene where she drives him to rehab and he's like, well, you know, I just want to get high one more time God bless her. Like, she goes and buys that heroin and lets him shoot up in her car. I was so worried. I'm like, she's going to get arrested. I thought arrested, raped, attacked. Yeah, it's a bad scene in in downtown L.A. And he's shooting up right there in his toes in her car. She makes a, a decision right then and there of like, okay, I can never use again. In order to make sure this never happens, I'm going to go off my meds. And that's maybe the spiral, right? Like, this is what sends her into killing herself you you just explained something for me that was very helpful because yeah we get this scene she goes out to buy the heroin luke sees something in her purse i just thought it was a prescription bottle i'm like why is he freaking out about that okay it's because she can't do her meds if he's doing his heroin right right they feel everything together and so that's the sacrifice she makes and consequently she starts just flipping out she has a therapist nice call back here russ tamlin the original luke oh okay He's now playing Dr. Montague, uh, giving her consultation, giving her these meds. I did not recognize Jacoby. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's him, for sure. And he definitely was happy to do this part. He was glad they called him. He's the only returning cast member from the 1963 movie. Might have been the only one alive, quite frankly. <laughs> only one alive, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but, yeah, he was happy to do it, and he thought it was quite ironic that, like, this was the last movie. He said, I'm retiring after this. This is the last movie I'm ever doing, and I'm working with an actress who this is the first movie she's ever done. He felt a real cyclical connection with her in these scenes. But, yeah, like, he's like, are you taking the medicine I prescribed to you? And she's trying to lie, but we can just see. She's lying badly. <laughs> She's destroying all her relationships. Theo, you know, like she makes Theo come over and like, tell me my husband is still in this apartment. Tell me his ghost is still here. She ends up breaking up with Theo. They never speak again after she kicks her out in this rage. She goes to Stephen's book reading and totally embarrasses him in front of all of his fans. Like this is behavior she wouldn't do if she were on her meds. Yeah, I, I think they make that clear. And that's all so much the worse when her doctor's like, oh, yeah, you, you should confront that house. It's it's just a pile of wood. It's a corpse. There's nothing to be afraid of. And that plants the idea. Mm, right. I, that would be the psychological take on this. You just need uh, exposure therapy. Like, there's nothing to fear. That's how people get over fear of heights, fear of spiders. You just go confront it. And eventually you realize there's nothing to fear at all. Except when it's an evil house that wants to eat you. Unless the spider's poisonous, you know, I have fear of scorpions and cobras. I'm not going to go confront them. It's wise to be afraid of poisonous animals, but if it's impairing your ability to leave your house or something, that's an entirely different thing. And so, yeah, it seems logical to be like, hey, just go to the house and you'll know that it's just a house. But it isn't, of course. And it is the house that seems to drive her into her final spiral. As it were. Actually, it seems more like a straight down drop. But. 
No, but she dances all over that house. She's reenacting her wedding. Right. Exactly. Hill House has seduced her. I do think it's a canny mix of, like, to her, it's all of her family together at last. It's a happy moment. Yeah, Luke is at the wedding this time. Yeah, he's looking clean and sober. My husband is still alive. Why wouldn't I be wanting to be here? Why would I ever leave? Really, the theme that becomes very pronounced in the second half of this series is the idea of... Why go out into the world when it wants to kill you? Like, maybe being in a haunted house forever is a better alternative than living your life. All right, this is something I actively dislike about the resolution of this series. So, I mean, isn't the house also trying to kill you? Uh, Well, I mean, of course, anything can kill you and it will be cited. The housekeeper will say the house eats, eats you like anything else. It's no different than anything else. But there is a sense that, again, we'll we'll get into greater detail, certainly when we hear Olivia's story, about the fear parents have about letting their children make those mistakes, go out into the world and get hurt, get hooked on drugs, go through those things. As a parent, you don't want to see them leave you. You don't want to see them get injured. And so, yeah, coming home is, on a certain level, killing herself, but it's also protecting herself from all the pain that she experienced. I mean, this confirms my idea that nostalgia is toxic. (laughs) You can't go home again. Like, yeah, it's going to kill you. It's not healthy to think that is the best time of your life. And I do think if you're going to do Hill House in any adaptation, you have to have Nell going up the spiral staircase. And maybe she jumps, maybe she's not. But you've always got to include that. The fact that it's the very center of the series, the centerpiece of the show, the thing that is going to impact everybody else feels very well positioned, very well written. And just hurtful when she sees her mother at the top, she thinks she's getting a necklace and she's getting a noose. Yeah, there's that locket they set up earlier that had the pictures of the twins and she would get her own someday and now she sees her mom giving it to her and now she's got a rope around her neck. So was she mentally ill or was she just obsessed with her mom's suicide? I don't know. You were asking earlier whether she did kill herself or not, Arnie. I, I, what is your beat on this? I honestly don't know. I mean, it does feel to me like she is the only one there, but she's being tricked into the suicide by hallucinations that I believe are caused by ghosts, not by meds. Because later on, there will be way too many shared delusions for it not to be ghosts. Yeah, I I do think Nell does have a mental illness thing. Like, again, it's 100% of each in this, but I I would write hers off to mental illness. And this could have been accidental. Like, it's not even, you know, we saw earlier in a flashback, the mom telling Hugh, hey, clean up those ropes or there's going to be swinging bodies. And I guess he never got around to putting those ropes away. And so there's a couple too many cringeworthy lines like that foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. But again, if you're in the state of deliria where you're dancing around a house because you think you're at your wedding and you think your mom's putting a locket around your neck, like it could have been a total accidental death. She fell off this ledge and got her, you know, head wrapped around the ropes. I think you could all predict as fans of the book, as people that have seen the previous movies, that she was going to go through with it and, and die. And certainly we know by this point that everyone is, you know, the body has already been on display. Like we know that she's going down here. I don't think that many people are going to realize that she is her bent neck lady, that the, that she will continue to drop through previous scenes that we already saw and haunt herself. 
I love the way that's revealed the camera work, or it's not really camera work, the CGI of her falling through the ground from scene to scene. But I had figured out that was going to be her much earlier in the episode. But it's still a very visually exciting reveal. And I thought, again, it was very... This is why I had to take a break. Emotionally exhausting for me. Like, thinking about someone with a mental illness. And, like, when you suffer from depression or something, like, nine times out of ten, you know you're suffering from something. You know something's wrong. You just can't do anything about it. So, like, looking at her, you know, at these times since she was a little girl, this if this bent neck lady is, you know, her realization of mental illness, like, knowing something's wrong with her and just that's coming up over and over and, like, that's what ends up taking her life. I don't know. After this one, like I said, I had a hit stop and just take a break for a day. There are many people that suffer the belief, certainly if you're depressed, that there's no point to life, that there's, why are you alive? You're just going to be dead. And this seems to be almost confirming that. Your whole life, it was always going to be this. And even though you thought you got away for a little bit and got happy and married and all of that, it was all so that it could be taken from you. And that is kind of how depression works on your mind. Whether you want to say it's a house infecting her mind or you want to say that it's a genetic illness uh, undiagnosed or untreated uh, it doesn't change the fact that this is a really hard hard moment to process and experience whether you guess the trick of it or not it still hurts a lot it does it turns out i really liked this character in this episode seeing this was a hard fall this tv show is not the only one that can do that <laughs> Next episode, Two Storms. This is the one I think that starts to really delve into Hugh Crane, who by this point we should probably bring up is being played by two different actors. We got Henry Thomas of E.T. and Timothy Hutton of The Dark Half. And what's kind of strange about it is there's only 11 years difference between the two actors. Yeah, I, they should have kept the same actor for the dad. I haven't seen Timothy Hutton in so long. I mean, the thing that I always go to him with is ordinary people. I know I've seen him in other stuff, but he looks so bad in this. I'm like, wow, they really gave Henry Thomas a shit makeup job here. <laughs> The only thing that looks similar is their eyes to me. Like that That's all I could see why you put these two together. But yeah, just keep one or the other. Well, here's my guess. They, I, you would think on the commentary, uh, Flanagan might explain the decision here. All he says is, Henry Thomas is one of my favorite people in the world. I met him on Ouija 2, and I'm putting him in everything that I ever do. Uh, he was, I think, unfortunately cast as Jack Nicholson in Dr. Sleep. Less successful there. But wasn't he also the child molester dad in Gerald Games where Olivia, the, the actress playing his wife in this, that was her as a kid? Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Again, he loves this actor. He was going to use Henry Thomas. Why Timothy Hutton? Why play the game when there's only 11 years difference? They look, I mean, Timothy Hutton does look as you point out, Arnie, more bedraggled, I think you're seeing the way the kids see him. The kids love their dad in 1992. Henry Thomas is, to all the children, a beloved figure. But after the mother dies, he changed in their eyes. And I think that that's the point. Like when we see him post-Olivia dying, uh, he's become this hated figure that all the kids pile their shit on. Like it's your fault in some way or another. They all kind of blame him, except for Nell. Nell was the only one that kept the correspondence going. 
I kept wondering if he looked so bad because he'd spent some time in jail. He didn't go to jail. No, but I'm, I was wondering this early on. Well, in the very first episode, it's established that it has been ruled a suicide. He is, in the court of public opinion, tabloids are always going to gossip about whether he did it or not. And we're going to see that woman that like was a big fan of Stephen be like, I want your dad to write a novel because I want to know what he was thinking. Like He's the mystery figure because he's the one that had the house locked away. He didn't burn it down. He didn't sell it off. He didn't flip it like he was originally planning to for a profit. He's keeping the Dudleys on to watch it. Right. The housekeepers are going to keep going, lock the gates. I guess I'll just pay for the upkeep and, you know, like no one will ever live there again. And so is that guilt? Does that look like you're hiding DNA evidence? I guess it could look suspicious. Uh, certainly the kids think of it as being part of his non-disclosure. Like they feel like he hasn't been upfront with them about what really happened in that house. And he has his reasons for not doing so. But now he's coming back into this. And now that his Nell is dead, this is going to be the start of him reestablishing relationships with the other four kids. And I just want to say that whatever I think of the series, wherever my arrow goes, this episode glued me to the television. My eyes, I don't think, blinked this episode. From centrifugal force? Because you're spinning so fast? It might be. It might be that it just pulled me into the center of gravity <laughs> with that. But this episode is a incredible piece of technological, technical, and artistic... I'm going to say perfection. I mean, it definitely has a different feel than all the other episodes because I think some of the acting, due to the fact that this appears to be one long take, I think the acting feels a bit more stage acting. Like, the actors could screw up and talk over each other and things, and we're just going to keep going with it, whereas I didn't get that kind of feel in any other episode. But I really loved watching this episode. If I ever go back to the series, I'll just watch this episode. I'm curious to know because I, in, in watching it originally, I was like, yeah, they're doing a lot of amazing uh, steady cam shots. But it didn't occur to me until I heard the commentary. There are only four cuts in this episode for the bulk of it. What you're seeing are, are 14 minute long takes in which the funeral home becomes Hill House all in one seamless set. Like, there's no digital trickery. They didn't do composite shots. This is all gaffers and sound guys and the cameraman on dollies and what have you really pull in some stuff behind the scenes. Yeah, I had to look that up because once I finished this episode, I did need a break and I needed to know how they did that. Was it fake? Was it all CGI merging of shots? And the fact that they built those two sets, you know, that what he said in the interview I read is this was... In the original pitch, they built all the sets to accommodate this episode. Yes, he was very excited about doing this technically. And I think it's important just thinking about in terms of Hugh, Hugh Crane, like this is claustrophobic. I have spent all of this time in Florida, like far away from the kids that I loved, hiding my secrets from them. And now there's no more hiding anymore. Like the part of the reason why you would make this the episode where people can't get away from each other is because, yeah, this is the claustrophobic moment where they're all coming together. There's no more avoidance. 
yeah, this is the big moment that it's been building up to is this dysfunctional family having to get together again and what's going to happen? How how bad is it going to go? Mm-hmm. Certainly some of this would be predictable. Like That Theo is drinking would be obvious that, you know, like Luke wouldn't be able to handle it. I was mad at Theo because, yeah, Luke is there. Like, don't be drinking in front of the guy. Like, he, he's trying to stay clean. Yeah, right. I know it's not supportive, but they're not supportive of each other. I mean, you got to remember that, like, this family has been very fragmented since 2012. It's been a long time since they all went together to send him off to rehab. And, you know, Stephen's going to be triggered because, like, you know, the insistence of both Hugh and, I think, Luke is that it's the house that killed Nell. Like, she didn't commit suicide. There's no mental illness going on here. The house did this. And that's just the thing that will will make Stephen just livid. Is like, you let Nell believe all that bullshit. And that's probably why she ended up dead. It's really bringing their problems to the fore. And it's sort of bringing Stephen back, I think, as the central character. I mean, it should be underlined that the problem is, is that Hugh never told these kids what happened. So that there's no reason to trust their dad. They all perceive different things in that moment as they were fleeing from the house. All they know is their mom ends up dead from suicide. And that's all the details they have. Like, it's understandable, like how upset they are with them. And the dad still doesn't want to talk. And now it's taken one of their siblings. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the other big secret that's going to come out here is that, well, we already knew Theo took the blood money from Steven. But guess what, Shirley? You thought you were better than that, but your husband, in order to pay for your charity, has had his private slush fund, and Theo's going to out that too. A couple cocktails, and Theo is telling family secrets. Yeah, we, there was a setup earlier where we knew there was a secret account. Cheryl got a hold of it, like she saw that checkbook, but not quite sure what it was. But at this point, yeah, I know. Oh, he accepted money for her for that book. Like he's been, yeah, has that private account. And I mean, look, I I understand why Shirley at this point is completely 100% pissed, like totally justified. Yeah, I've been supporting you. You're, you live in my like clubhouse out back. And now you're telling me like to add insult to injury when this episode finally ends, like Shirley, the power's going to go out. And then when it comes back on, Shirley's going <laughs> to find Kevin and Theo like kissing. So like, again, the fact that it doesn't end in murder is probably a sign of yes. restraint. <laughs> Shirley is doing pretty good here. But this is called Two Storms interweaved with this power outage storm at the funeral home. They are bringing us back and forth to a important night in Hill House. Yeah, what? There's a hailstorm that's breaking windows. I thought they were going to find out that these were rocks because I remember that story from Nell's childhood in the 1963 one. That will come later, though. Yeah, well, it, isn't it? I mean, couldn't we read this as Olivia is bringing this on? That this is where the nice mom, you know, it's said that this family was in this house for about eight weeks. This is probably the midway point. Uh, this is probably where the house is getting to her or her mental illness is getting to her. The, the claustrophobia is getting to her. Something is happening to Olivia and maybe it's manifesting in microstorms, storms that aren't hitting the Dudley's house just a few, you know, miles away, but are completely blowing out this house. This hail could be created by Olivia. Yeah, it does go back to the rock storms that were talked about in that first movie and things. Yeah, and this does feel like a, a real moment of Olivia having a, an episode with her mental illness. At one point, Nell is going to go missing. The parents are going to go upstairs to go looking for her. Hugh's got to go back downstairs because his batteries just won't keep that flashlight going. And we just see 
Olivia wandering around this house. And again, this is cool because it's all like long takes and like she'll go in a room. The statues are looking one way. She comes out of the room. The statues, like at least one of them is turned around, is looking a different way. And they'll keep switching that around off screen. So it's different positions. And yeah, she just, she feels like she's in this trance as she just wanders around from house to house seeing each ghost. Yeah, we're starting to meet, the, we'll never get the whole family of Hill in this you know, backstory, but we, we do understand something that we were watching in earlier episodes. The kids were playing with some kind of antiquated intercom system where there's all these tubes and you can talk to somebody by, you know, like it's like a pre-phone device. And they heard an elderly ghost calling for Clara. This uh, elderly woman is Hazel Hill. Olivia is finally going to see her in the bed. Yeah, we saw a reflection of her earlier. Luke saw when they were playing with that intercom device. He sees that reflection. Clara, like, come out and <laughs> scare him away. And Clara is their housekeeper, Dudley. Mrs. Dudley is Clara. She took care of this woman. She'll later tell a personal story about how, you know, that this is kind of reminding us of that 1963 story where the child that grew up in Hill House never left that bed, right? Like, I kind of feel like she's the woman that went from 6 to 80 and never got out of this bedroom. Yeah, it had a lot of callbacks to, again, the previous movies, the banging on the walls, the, you know, because since we never had the invalid mother here for Nell, I thought that was just going to be something ignored. But again, when I'm looking at what makes a Hill House movie, I'm guessing that is part of it. But Nell is, again, it sort of sets up the idea that Mel is going to disappear from this family. The fact that it's going to be realized that when they actually find her, she's going to claim, I was always standing here in this spot. You couldn't see me. But it, like, it was like almost like the house swallowed her. Uh, certainly, it has plans to do so. Creepy moment. Yeah, it's another emotional episode for me because we see, you know, going back to stuff going on at the viewing of the body when the family gets together, like all of a sudden there's buttons on Nell's eyes and her casket falls down and like we're gonna find it's like Nell trying to get their attention like yeah she is the ignored one and it, you know it's gonna link in with this story here to emphasize that but again it just felt so bad here's this person we're supposed to be mourning over our sister and this family's just fighting and, and she's just being totally ignored right Nell is really the one person maybe the mother would be the other that could probably has a good relationship with, with all the other people that could actually reach out to them but they not unlike Luke they just don't believe her. They don't listen to her. And so it, it will be post-death doing some ghosty stuff that she'll finally be able to get their attention. That's what's going to start happening in these later episodes. Yeah, this is episode seven, Eulogy. This is one of two episodes that I feel is about Olivia Crane. Carla Gugino, we've already talked about how she was the star of Flanagan's Gerald's Game. She was just coming off of that, and he brought her in. He, Flanagan was so impressed with her ability to work in one location, the minimalism of, of that storyline, he brought her back. And apparently her husband is here, too. Uh, throughout this series, I only caught it sometimes, but if you freeze frame on stuff, there are ghosts throughout, almost in every scene. Oh, yeah, I, yes. There are people standing in the shadows. There are things going on. Bruce Greenwood, the husband that dropped dead of the heart attack after he handcuffed his wife to the bedpost. Gerald, as it were, is somewhere in here in this, the early scene, too. They dressed him up as one of these figures. Uh, now that we're seeing her really still in Hugh's life. What's kind of interesting, we might have noticed it in the previous episode, but Hugh is kind of like 
talking to things that aren't there, we're going to realize that he still sees Olivia in his bed, giving him advice, helping him on how to navigate this funeral and get back in touch with his kids. But she's the one there, like, telling him to, yeah, connect with Theo, tell her that, you know, that it's not over between her and Shirley, even though she kissed her husband. Tell Luke he's proud of his sobriety. Yeah, she seems to have pretty good advice, which, again, I, I'm so jarred by that moment she yelled at <laughs> Nell for writing on the wall. Like, now I'm always suspicious of her. But, yeah, it seems like she's got pretty good advice. We'll see the, you know, one time he won't listen to it and when she's trying to tell him to stop and just shut up and he keeps going. But, yeah, it seems like whether she's there or not and we did see Hugh when he was sleeping in that bed in Florida like an arm comes and holds him and maybe that was a dream maybe that was her ghost but she seems to be a positive force in death I think it gets mentioned later that this is all in his head. Like, this is his idea of Olivia. Yeah, he's taking some kind of pills at the end. They say it's for his heart, but I'm not 100% sure if that's true. Yeah, I I was wondering about that. Yeah, I'm not sure that this is really her ghost. Or it could just be this is how he copes with it. Maybe he has just literally cracked and he just has to talk to his wife. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's just a theme of this. I mean, we'll see it quite literalized in the last episode. The idea that, like, you know, you we just end up, like freezing in moments and like holding on to things and so they might seem like ghosts or they might just be ptsd trauma that we replay again and again in our head or like for whatever reason he's not willing to let go of olivia like that whatever happened in that house and we're getting closer to getting some answers he in all of this time has not allowed her to go and again they in their exchange i think it even gets literally said that they don't count what happens in the last two days as being them like they've forgiven each other for for how it all ended up and they seem happily married (laughs) like they've they managed to have a good life together never mind the fact that she died 26 years ago the other scene i really like here early on it's understated but aunt janet comes in and you can tell that hugh really has a problem with her and i'm like well what does this mean but when you really peel that back aunt janet is the woman that took away his kids yeah, she took the kids, right? She got custody of them. We hear a lot about Aunt Janet, but one of the earlier episodes, it, it talks about how like they're going to a custody hearing and, and Hugh doesn't even want the kids to testify, which is bad for him. What's clear in these scenes is he loves his kids. He never wanted to leave them. He didn't go to jail. It feels that way. It feels like he got locked up. But the truth of the matter is he locked away the answers about what happened. And Aunt Janet probably was like, you're not going anywhere near that man that killed my sister. And she poisoned them against him. And so this has got to be really hard to all be in the same room, as it usually is in family gatherings. There's a lot of bad history and baggage and emotion that's coming out now that everyone's here conducting the funeral, driving to the gravesite. And I'm glad that the supernatural aspects seem to be ramping up episode over episode. It's how it should do it in a haunting movie. You should be getting more and more ghosts up to the climax. I still feel like we're very heavy on the family drama, and I've come to realize I don't really care a whole lot about this family. I care more about the ghosts and the mystery than I do about their interpersonal drama, and so the more they argue, the more I'm 
disengaged, but the more supernatural stuff happens to Olivia, the more I'm coming back to it. This is curious to me. I really, if you don't mind, if you could elaborate on why that would be. It sounds to me like you're not saying the movie's doing a bad job with the family drama. You're saying I don't want to process family drama? No, I don't find it all that interesting the way it's done here. There are family dramas I like. Ordinary People is a movie I hold very dear. I love that movie, but I think that when it comes to family dramas, I am going to be very picky. I want only the best and the most unique. And why is Ordinary People better at it than this? I believe that their interpersonal relationships between Timothy Hutton and his mother and between the mother and the father there are something that I don't see regularly, whereas this does feel like trite primetime NBC family drama. Trite is a word I I never have experiencing this. No, I would not use that one. (laughs) What a damnation. I mean, just like like a knife in my heart hearing you say that. You feel like this is highly original family drama with the constant arguments? I feel like this drama is killing me to watch this family who loves each other so much tear each other apart. It absolutely is heartbreaking to see all of this struggle. Very much so. Yeah, I I think it's very well done. Feels a little too real at times, but... Yes, yeah. It's triggering almost in some cases. Without going into my own drama, I do feel like there are some moments that I'm like, woof. Yes, there there are moments I am triggered. (laughs) Okay, we're going to back away from this and give me some ghosts because I don't want to deal with that right now. And so, yes, we do get some ghosts. We get some Olivia ghosts specifically at the gravesite. She's popping up there to grab Luke and remind him that he's not going to survive his addiction. She's going to be the one that destroys the model of the dream house and, you know, in the office of Shirley. The forever house, Stuart. Yeah, we already know what the forever house is going to be by this point. Yeah, it's this is a dream that unrealized. This is what uh, mom wanted them to live and they never did. Yeah, there was that really neat spooky moment earlier where like there's so many different blueprints for this house. Olivia had to go and like consolidate them to like make a final version and there's this pattern written all over them and it's like the footprint of that forever house that she designed for them to move into once they sold this one. Yeah, and uh, again, like this is where we're seeing Olivia in the past Yeah, slipping in that moment, but, like, I also think this is around the same time where, like, you know, she's... Maybe the screwdriver things happened, maybe not, but I feel like it's around this time we're seeing... We're starting to have empathy for Hugh. Like, Hugh is struggling in the basement to try and clean up all of this black mold that happened after this storm that nobody can even find on a weather map. Now, you want to have me have sympathy for a character, let me have them fighting black mold in a basement. There's something I can really sympathize with. Right, and sticking their hands in fans because Steven wants to help, but doesn't know how to unplug, or, of course, he gets tricked into it. I think he did unplug it, but he got, yeah, it's the ghost plugged it back in. But we never see it unplugged, right? I mean, I didn't rewind, but we see a close-up of the outlets... We see Steve go to unplug it, but we never... Again, I think that is the trick of this film. They're they're going to shoot it in just a way. Again, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe it's mental illness. Maybe it's a ghost. It's not going to commit either way. All I'm saying is in the early parts, maybe you believe the kid's line that it's all dad's fault. And here, 
I'm seeing dad struggle. I'm seeing dad trying to please everybody and it's just not working. And he knows his wife's going crazy. He's turning to Mr. Dudley and what should I do about this? And Dudley has this kind of heartbreaking story of his own about their own child that's that's died and, and what his wife has went through here. They've had experts come in and look at the mold and like nobody can get rid of this stuff. They seem to clean it up and then the next instant it's back. It's supernatural mold. Am I the only one who thought the Dudleys might be ghosts? I didn't know how the Dudleys were going to be important. Uh, It is a surprise how they're utilized in the end. I did not think that Abigail was real. They just seemed to know so much and the way they acted and things and the fact that we never saw them outside the house. They're older, you could assume they're dead by the time we're in the present time, but there was something about them that just made me think they might be supernatural. I mean, they're they're more well-developed for this than we've seen them before. That, that's the biggest difference for me, so I guess that's why I bought into them being real. I never thought they were ghosts. Yeah, they have their own trauma connected. They already know what this house is capable of, and they've stayed on for financial reasons, uh, what have you, and they'll stay on beyond this for Abigail, but yes, they seem to know that when things are going wrong for the Cranes, that it is Hill House to blame. And this is where we also find out that, yeah, that bootlegger ghost that Luke saw is it was actually William Hill. He was, I think, I'm putting one and one together to equal two, but I think what must have happened was the cops came to his house, he bricked himself inside to hide from them, and then couldn't scratch his way out. He ended up killing himself by sealing himself away inside the walls of Hill House to hide from authorities during the 20s. Okay, I, I didn't quite get that. I just thought he went crazy like so many people in this house did and walled himself up, and then that manifested and sounded like rats were in the wall because of that scratching. It certainly works in a Poe way. If you just want to see it yeah. as some kind of telltale <laughs> heart, it's scary to think about scratching in the walls. You know, Poe did write a lot of stories about rats in the walls and things, too. So I was, I thought for sure where there was going to be a scene with the rats coming out. And I think this is, again, that theme again that we already hinted at is the idea of like, are you better off inside the house or outside? Would he have been better going to jail or dying inside the walls of Hill House? Is he protected as a ghost living, living, air quotes, forever? Or are you better off getting away from such an evil place is a debate. I feel that the show does not tell us enough where we can make a judgment call of that. I mean, it seems like you can be happy in that house and it's not turning you into some demonic creature or something. So if that's the case, then if you're just yourself and have an eternal life in that house with your wife or something... Why wouldn't you want to be there? But also, we're supposed to think that this is scaring the hell out of people. Yeah, why not be beautiful and young forever and not be hooked on drugs and not turn into mentally ill people and betray each other? Again, the case can be made when looking at 2018 that things were better for them in 1992. Case can be made. But we do end with that law enforcement. Sheriff Beckley is the guy that exhumes the wall and carts William Hill out of the place. And then we also have in flashback that he takes this voluntary statement from Hugh, that Hugh doesn't think he needs a lawyer. He is happy to tell them things that he knows, but we can see that the law really does believe that he's guilty of something, that he has three hours in his story he can't account for. And this episode shows 
he spent that time in the Red Room, that red door that no one's been able to get inside of. Somehow he got inside there. We're getting closer to what happened to Olivia as we enter Episode 8 and Witness Marks. Not about a particular character. It's sort of a return to Steven. We're going to see him come to realize, I think, the way I interpret this episode, is that his theory about mental illness is shakable. That he, what he thought would happen in the past could all be explained through looking at the mental state of his ill mother, and now it's provable. Things that he remembers from the house were ghosts. Yeah, th- this is a rebuttal of that first episode. Steven sees a ghost where he says he's never saw one and then he finally sees one at the end. But yeah, the twist here is that he has seen a ghost before. Right. Uh, it should be said, prefacing all of this, Luke has run away from the funeral home. He has stolen a credit card. He's stolen Theo's wheels. And he, the family fears, is going out to kill himself. And so we have all the family members in a hullabaloo about what they should do. And Stephen and his dad have piled into a car and are just driving around what's called like methadone row. We're just going to go to the drug areas <laughs> and see if we can just see him on the street. And this is where Stephen finds out that what he wrote about in the book, a passage he just mentions about some clock keeper, uh, never happened. That dad knows for a fact that he did not have anyone work on the clock on the staircase yeah, I didn't go back to, to reference the scene they were talking about, but they're going to show that clock <laughs> after this point. And so I'm always paying attention. Yes, there is always someone working on that clock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's throughout uh, the whole series. I count them four or five times. They have always somebody at that clock, but that's a ghost. And what his story is, we don't know. The important thing is Stephen can no longer cling to the idea that all of his family is nuts. They were traumatized by supernatural spirits. But here, Hugh knows... Where Luke is going, but doesn't let everybody else know what he saw. And there's a lot of Olivia appearing for him, kind of guilting him. And I didn't think that was actually the ghost of Olivia. I thought that was his own conscience personified. Why do you think that? Because Olivia is standing there like saying, why don't you tell them what you saw? And Hugh just never opens his mouth about it. When they're all accusing Luke of going to get high... Hugh knows where Luke is going, and he's just not telling the whole family. Well, they'll get a ping on the credit card. He uses it at a gas station, and that's how they're able to track where he's going. Yeah, but Hugh knew ahead of time. I didn't take it that way. I didn't take it as that. Maybe that is the reading of that. I What I took it as, Olivia has been trying very hard for Hugh to connect with all of his children. And what she knows Stephen needs, and all these kids need to know, is that she killed a child. Like, Abigail was real, and I poisoned her, and I did something awful, and you need to just let them know that I'm not this perfect thing that you murdered. I'm not the thing that you disappointed and broke. I'm guilty in this relationship, and you need to to blow that. They're adults now. They can handle the truth. They're not children anymore. So that's what she was talking about? The way she's saying, tell them what you saw, the fact that they're all talking about Luke leaving, I thought he saw something that Luke did... That let him know that Luke was going to go burn the house down. In the Red Room, maybe, I'm not going to say for certain, but I know that ultimately what we're talking about is what Luke saw, what the cops are wanting to know about. Those three hours all have to do what happened in that Red Room. And it changes how you see the characters to know what happened in the Red Room. 
Yeah, that's how I took it as well, is that, again, it's always about trying to get Hugh to finally just be truthful about what happened, because that is the source of this trauma. And meanwhile, we do have Nell trying to bring her sisters together. She knows about this fight. She remembers how the intense knocking got them to come together, so she's going to try this trick. It's worth pointing out, this is Halloween. Nell killed herself on October 28th. It's been a couple days. Kevin's got to take these kids trick-or-treating. You forget that. Yeah, where you get a whole thing about the son, like, wanting to dress up as mm-hmm. Dear Devil. Ah, because it's Netflix. That's mm-hmm. why. Now I get it, because he dresses <laughs> up as that that first season Daredevil version. Okay, it's all clicking now. Yeah, I did think it was weird. It's like, oh, we gotta, we're going to bury your aunt, and then we got to go trick-or-treating. Right. And so, again, Nell is playing this knocking game, and it's going to scare the hell out of Shirley. She thinks it's trick-or-treaters that won't leave her alone. Some kind of home invasion scenario. And ultimately, like, she's going to go running out of the house and run right into Theo. And yeah, they're going to find out that, yeah, Luke is going back to Hill House. They're going to go together. And I don't know, would you believe your sibling if they said it was important for me to kiss your your spouse because I was so concerned with the feelings of death? <laughs> I don't know. It takes a certain kind of sister to to believe that it was a biological need. I wouldn't go for that, but I only have sisters, so... I'm not sure how many of these siblings know about Theo's powers. I know Nell does, because she tried to force her to touch where her husband died to see if he was still around. But yeah, that'd be real crazy if you didn't even know that your sister believed that she could like have psychic readings from touching things i mean they she knows and doesn't know you know it's funny what people understand about these powers and and again i get the sense that shirley doesn't want to go there and theo doesn't want to go there but after nell pops out of the back seat and they spin out they just have to go there and and have the talk and yeah what theo says is i wasn't trying to move in on your husband i was trying to shake these feelings i've had ever since i took nell's hand And my real fear is like, this is what death is. Like once we die, we're all going to feel this way forever. And that's what I've been running from. That's why I'm promiscuous. That's why I'm always hooking up and trying to escape that feeling. So Kevin was a light. He was uh, not a lover. He was not someone she was romantically interested. Interesting theory. Again, I think it might be hard for for just any sibling (laughs) to buy into that. But if you have a Sibling like Theo, I guess it makes as much sense as anything. And we get our final scare here is that Luke does, in fact, arrive at Hill House. He's got seven gasoline canisters. Remember, that's his magic talismanic take on things. But you can't just throw gasoline on a rug and and throw your lighter on it, or at least not at Hill House. Yeah, I did think he needed to be more strategic about where he was pouring that gasoline. He The stairs, okay, that's wood, but yeah, throwing it on that floor. You got to get it in the corners where it's going to get on walls. But yeah, this is a magic house, so it just goes out as soon as he lights it. Is black mold flammable? I don't know. Maybe. Probably the only way to get rid of it anyway. (laughs) That's where I would start it anyway. Burn out the black mold. But he's grabbed from behind by a flapper we're going to learn is named Poppy. She's going to play a big part of our next episode, the penultimate episode, episode nine, Screaming Mimis, which kind of feels like it should be combined with the other Olivia episode. This is Olivia as her life was lived inside Hill House, the one that nobody knew. You know, we've had earlier scenes that Stephen tried to cheer her up and paint a, a dresser and and she smashed it and seemingly and, and to Stephen's mind in a psychotic rage but in fact what she was smashing was this image that won't go out of her head of Nell and Luke in the future dying 
She can actually see what they're going to become. She can see the bent neck lady. She can see the guy ODing on the street. And that's what's terrifying her. And I think this is where the metaphor really works. Because, yes, she could be seeing her future children as ghosts. Or it could be a real fear. Like, I see this with my wife and, and our girls. Like, now that they're getting into teenage years, she's like, I, she's like, I'm an elementary school teacher. I know how to deal with elementary school age kids. They're teenagers. I don't know what to do. I don't understand how, what they're going to do when they go out <laughs> in the world and with social media and all like it really does freak her out like this is a not i'm not saying she's gonna kill him no 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 yeah yeah i want to make that clear <laughs> but no that that fear is very real like i've seen it yeah and i've really like recently it's funny how like you know like you catch something at the right moment but i don't i can't tell you i've had it, three different conversations three different people that are dealing with empty nest syndrome that are like my kid just went to college and i don't know what to do with that and you know olivia talking about wanting to freeze her kids so she can keep them young forever is i think a very relatable oh my parents used to say that to us all the time they're like we wish we could freeze you so you stop growing up and yeah like i heard that from my again my parents didn't want to kill us i want to make that clear but like this is a real thing you go through no yeah but hill house is going to exploit that oh great yes, of course well I, we can give you an option here. Your kids don't have to grow up. You don't have to let the real world get them. In fact, it's better if you just take care of them. You're their mother. Take care of them forever here. And we have this really haunting scene. I think it's used in some of the trailers with good reason. Even in the context of this, like when she goes to put her kids to bed and they talk about their nightmares of the future. Ooh. Let me tell you, before I watched this series... I did watch the trailers because a little behind the scenes info, we already released the first episode of our haunting retrospective when I'm recording this, but I needed some lines for our credits. So I went and I watched all the clips and trailers that were out on YouTube. And when I saw this scene, you do not understand how excited I was to watch this mini series. I'm like, oh my God, this looks so creepy and so involving and it has such mood this scene sold me to go watch this series and i i wish the whole series had this this episode has a creepiness to it that i just feel you know when they're arguing about you kissed my husband i don't have that same feeling well okay i mean yeah, I get that. But like, I feel like this fear permeates the entire series. It, again, it's the fear of are we better inside than outside? Is a haunted house a better alternative to a world where we fail? But how haunted is living in this haunted house if you become a ghost? Can you just like hang out? I mean, I guess it would get boring, but... <laughs> That's what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I think that, you know, it's a metaphor for death. Like, I don't know what happens after death, but I don't, I choose to live. In this house, it looks like you just literally are there and people can come and visit you. It's like you're, you're a shut in, but it does not feel like death to me. This does not feel like a metaphor for death. This feels like eternal life. I don't know if you're, if you're going to stay in one place and no, that to me, that's stagnant. That's, that's not life. To me, that's COVID. <laughs> or to me, that's walling yourself inside and then realizing you don't want to be there and not being able to claw yourself out. Like, I feel like yeah. that is how people get tricked by the house. They're promised that this is the place that they need to be. And then they realize that if they want to live, I mean, it's a, it's a line of dialogue near the end of like, nothing bad can ever happen to them. They stay here and the husband counters nothing good either. 
Like the choice to live your life is to take the risk that bad things can happen to you. And if you choose instead to, to hide and wall yourself away, it's its own kind of monster. It's its own kind of terror. Yeah, here's here's another reference for you, Arnie. I, I definitely got like an inception moment during all this with the mom as as we see her going mad and and it's like, oh, we have to kill ourselves because to, to to wake ourselves up. Good call. I did not think of Inception, but you're exactly right. Yeah, but here's the thing. This doesn't matter because there's emotion behind this, something Christopher Nolan still can't do. Eh, I thought Inception had, of all the M- Nolan films, Inception's got, like, most of it for me because of the thing with the wife. No, but this, again, this, it does, you know, a similar thing, but it, to me, it's so much stronger. And I gotta add, like, does Olivia, she suffers from migraines and also Munchausen by proxy? Like, we, we saw that mom in The Sixth Sense that's poisoning her daughter. It's a real thing. Like, mm-hmm. you want to harm your kids to keep them close to you so they can't grow up, so they're dependent on you. Right. Or, like, we, again, we've seen these people that have blinded themselves to prevent themselves, like, uh, all the self-injury that's happening as preference to the idea of facing the world. Do I want to see reality or do I want to like hurt myself to protect myself, to wall it all away? Yeah, Poppy is here as the temptress. She's the one that like, I don't know enough about this story, but it was mentioned that William Hill met Poppy in an asylum, that he at some point was institutionalized. She was institutionalized and they had crazy babies that one didn't live and one like we see the boy, he's like in a wheelchair or something like that. They they didn't turn out well. And Poppy talks about her daughter choking on air and what have you. Again, is this because they were bad bloodlines or God knows, maybe even incestuous or something? Maybe it's his wife's sister. Not enough is known to really be able to read into that. I don't think I need it. I think there's just enough of the ghosts to inform what's going on with Olivia, for my taste. I come to the conclusion they probably killed their kids because Poppy's nuts as of can be. Yeah, I figured Poppy did something similar that Olivia is going to attempt. Right. And, you know, how much do we know about the Overlook ghost? Who was the guy in the bear outfit blowing the guy? Like, there's, <laughs> there's a lot about Kubrick's version of that that lives in ambiguity I'm comfortable with. Now, you can read the Stephen King novel, you can watch the miniseries, find out more about that, but sometimes it's better not to know. You don't want to over-explain the terror. The point is, Olivia can sense that enough bad is going on here in her thoughts that she could potentially hurt someone. Certainly when she grabs that screwdriver, threatens to drive it into, Hugh wakes up with it right on his neck. Time for you to go see your sister, right? Time for you to take a break. We got to get you out of here. We probably should have done it a while ago, but she can't leave. She goes to that motel instead of Janet's house. Is that the one Nell was at earlier? Yep. Yeah, they're all going back to that same room, the way station, before they go back to Hill House, and she's going to have her tea party with Abigail. Luke, before she leaves, asks if he can have Abigail over for a sleepover. She's real. She's in his bed when she comes back. I did love that moment because kids are like this, and, you know, it's just how they are. Oh, your mother's having a psychotic break, but you're a young child. Mom, while you're leaving because you're crazy, can my friend sleep over? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Poor old Luke. You know, he's only six years old. What could he possibly understand about any of this other than he's frightened? And Abigail gives him comfort here. Of course, he would, you know, want somebody there in the bed with him if a tall man in a cane is coming every night for his hat. And yeah, like, this is kind of a shining moment. Like, the idea that your parent could hurt you is going to traumatize you. It will make you inject heroin. It will make you really, really a damaged person if you're woken up in the middle of the night to have a tea party with rat poison yeah and i it wasn't until we see abigail she's the first one to drink that tea and fall over foam at the mouth and die i'm like oh okay she was real like that's not a ghost like i thought even up to the moment where they're walking up there because this mom sees ghosts so i'm like sure of course maybe she's just playing along this make-believe game with her children but when that kid drops i'm like oh she just killed a kid see and it's weird The whole reveal of Abigail is weird because now that there's an extra child we've never seen before going with them into that kitchen. We've seen her. We have seen her in the background. Luke has seen her many times. No one is, uh, no one else has ever seen her. It's kind of a Bruce Willis, Haley Joel Osment relationship. It just does feel convenient that she's the first one to drink the tea. You know, of course, it would be the red shirt. You know, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go down, and who's going to drink the tea first? Oh, that guy in the red shirt in the back. I don't know. That makes it even more horrific. Because Okay, it's tragic if a mom poisoned her own child. But, okay, mom went crazy and, and tried to kill her. Like, but she took another innocent life, like, outside of the family. That seems almost more transgressive. And that was what the cop mentioned a few episodes ago. Of Like, there was another body. It's not just Olivia. What? There's another body? Well, here it is. But they didn't find the body, right? The body was going to be buried and never found. The cops don't know about this body. Or maybe he was referring to the body in the wall. You're right. Okay. Okay. I get, I'm getting confused myself because he was the, there to collect William Hill. And so he's not referring. You're right. He won't know about Abigail. That's what I thought. Yeah, it could have been William. The Dudleys are very understanding, maybe because they know the secret of this house. Like, they're still going to be with this child. It will be revealed towards the end, that stillborn baby that they had a story about. Like, they still see that baby in the house. And maybe that's why they wanted to stay as caretakers for so long. But I don't know. Like, yeah, we just killed your child that you kept secret from the world. Because, again, following the themes of this, like, they didn't want any harm to come to this child. So they kept it a total secret. And that's what brought it harm because no one thought it was a real kid. But, like, I don't know. They take it pretty well. Yeah. It's upsetting. Again, I think anytime you're seeing parents harming their children in this way, the fact that she's using language that makes us think earlier about, she calls them kittens and bugs and all of that. We're thinking about what happened to that box full of kittens. And we're like, yeah, I guess that is potentially going to be these children. I understand why Hugh got all of those kids out as fast as he could without taking Olivia with him when they tore out of that house. He was trying to protect them. But the Dudleys don't need to miss their daughter because now she's a forever child in this house, right? I mean, it's not like their daughter has been taken from them. Their daughter has been transformed, but the daughter's right there happy as a clam. Yeah, I don't know. You might want your live child, though. That that seems like a bit more than a dead one. And again, I think you're missing the possibilities of metaphor. In the same way that people visit grave sites and feel like they're still talking to their loved one, that's what Hill House represents to them. But maybe seeing Abigail that way is no more real than Hugh seeing Olivia in his bed. You know, like, it's you see them because you manifest it. 
Maybe, but I wish this show was a little clearer on that. I wish the show remained ambiguous because that's the point. That is the point, is that we do not know how much of the supernatural and paranormal is real. Yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly okay with how this film is. I mean, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I have a relative who lost a baby, like, just a few days old. And, and this was decades ago. And they are still haunted by that. Like, they still celebrate that baby's birthday. I, like, I very much saw that, like, with the Dudleys, like, the people in this house. Like, that, it's a very real thing. Like, they, I think she sees that baby, like, as a ghost. Like, I would totally believe it if she told me that. It could work either way, Arnie. You're right. Maybe going to Hill House is a way to literally spend time with their kid. They weren't letting the kid go anywhere. The kid was actually disobeying them by befriending Luke and going off for the sleepover. They never gave permission for that. And so, yeah, I guess they've got to be pretty upset. But they see it as the house tricking them out of, you know, raising their second child, just like it took their first child. And so... Yeah, maybe the best thing to do is just stay there and be caretakers and and think about the past and mourn the children that they don't have anymore. The reason why this sticks in my craw is all coming up in episode 10. The answers it quote-unquote gives, I really dislike due to the ambiguity. But here it's starting to begin. Okay, well, we're there. I mean, we're we're not going to take nine hours to do this podcast. We're at episode 10, Silence Lay Steadily. A tricky episode for lots of reasons, starting with the fact that it tricks you into thinking that Stephen has survived this and is writing his Hill House sequel. That we start here with the idea of, what's my new line? And his he's with Lee again, the wife that was estranged. And she's pregnant when he had a vasectomy. I guess he got it reversed. Like, this did fool me. I'm like... I thought it wasn't his. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this did get me because I'm like, okay, they're doing that whole trope where you you jump five years into the future and you're seeing all the changes and then you'll go back in time and see how it was resolved. And But nope, this is all, I guess, delusions, visions that they're all getting because they're stuck in the red room. Yeah, the truth is Stephen and Hugh just arrived, walked into the foyer smelling of gasoline and, you know, ghosts are everywhere. Stephen is now seeing the tall man. He's seeing Abigail on the stairs. He's seeing Luke laying down. He goes to see him and sucked into that red room. And now the red room is essentially going to make your worst fear come true. What is Stephen Crane's worst fear? The idea that he's going to pass on the family madness. The fact that this baby in Lee's belly is going to all of a sudden through the magic of CGI turn black and maybe it'll be as crazy as your mother. I mean, that is what really gnaws away at Stephen. And Flanagan talked about he wanted Red Room not only to be the heart of the house, but the stomach as well, that it's really eating them. And that the the best way to eat and destroy somebody is to, you know, it's the poltergeist line. It knows what scares you, right? It knows your worst fear, and that's what's going to be waiting for you. Yeah, we see them as kids. It knew, maybe not their worst fear, but it knew what to draw them in and maybe to grab their psychic energy so it could do this later on. Who knows? Whatever mumbo jumbo you want to come up with. But yeah, we see, like, Theo was dancing to Paula Abdul, and, like, this was the room. And <laughs> I did love that. Yeah, and, and that there's this treehouse, and it was a line I caught early on when they're like, Luke is in the treehouse, and the mom's like, oh, whatever. I'm like, well, why wouldn't she know to look in the treehouse? That seems like a real obvious place to look. But no, the red room is the treehouse, and we'll go through each kid and the parents, and it's all a different thing to them. Right. 
Luke already being there, the first one grabbed, his worst fear was obvious. Not ever getting clean. Always relapsing. You know, the fact that he imagines he's there with Joey in that hotel room. He got the money. They're there. He, they can finally come down and, and be well. Yeah, Joey returns is like, I got that hotel for us. And I'm like, downtown LA, you ain't getting that room for 200 bucks. <laughs> she becomes the girl with the runny egg eyes. And like, like there is something just horrifying because it probably could have happened. Like, maybe I just OD'd in that alley. I took your money. I bought some dope and now rats are eating me. Like the idea that like, I guess it would be an addict's worst fear. You're never going to be clean. You're always going to want it. You're always going to wind up dead <laughs> in an alley. I, I got to say, I, I think those runny egg eyes effects were this film's tribute to the 1999 version of The Haunting. Like that, that I'm like, oh, that's unfortunate. That should have been better. Yeah. Funny you should say that. Funny you should say that. Flanagan did do commentary on this episode and he said, you know, we ran out of time. And if there's one effect that I deeply regret every time I see it, it's those runny eyes. Oh, okay. Yeah. He feels you, but we get the point. It should have been so good after that story you got earlier. Again, I'm there mostly emotionally for these characters as they're confronting what, yeah, is really terrifying to them. And then the girls show up. They were on the road. They've finally gotten there. They've been grabbed too. Shirley's is interesting. Her worst fear is that, you know, she's so judgy. Like, she's the fixer. Everyone else is the screw-up. Well, like, maybe, like, the worst fear is, like, you're the one that broke up the family. You're the one that cheated. Before anything else, before Kevin Castillo, you hooked up at this conference. That was a funny scene, too, the way she... Her flirting is sending hot wings. Yeah, again, it's it's very believable in the way that people strike up a conversation that don't know each other. Like, you can see that they have chemistry, but then he flashes that ring, and she'd like to believe that she tells him off, and like, you're a married man, I'm not doing this. But the truth is, that's exactly what she was looking for. And she wants to be a good person, but maybe she's not. And the fact that she's seen this guy a couple of times throughout the miniseries, again ghosts aren't always ghosts sometimes they're regrets and, and so this is selling that point yeah again i think you can just i mean don't you do it i i there are things in my life that i replay that i can be standing somewhere and suddenly they're there before me and i'll never not think of them oh yeah absolutely yeah i consider that part of my mental illness yeah well, yes. I mean, you could call it whatever you want, a ghost, a wish, a regret, but I I would like to believe it's the human experience that we all have those phantoms, that they're all here. And for Shirley, again, like this is really hard for her to admit she's not the good one, she's the bad one. And of course, Theo, this one would be obvious, touching, we know, like hundreds of Day of the Dead hands popping up to grab her would be horrifying for someone that's fear of intimacy. But something else gets interestingly said here, Trish is like mentioning the fact that there was a man that walled himself away and wished himself to be tall. I think what they're telling us is that the bootlegger is the tall man. And it kind of feels like a reference to Legend of Hell House. Arnie, do you remember the conclusion of that movie? I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. Sorry for people that don't know. But there was a very Hill House-like movie that we covered for patrons. And the big twist of it was, it was like a little person that built big legs to, like, feel superior. (laughs) Yes. I think this is a callback to that. I mean, go check out that movie. I think it's a recommend from all of us. Well, I think I think Marjorie wasn't so keen on it, but Arnie, you and I recommended it. And so Legend of Hell House is uh, maybe where they're drawing inspiration on this, this ghost that Trish is talking about that's been haunting Luke. Don't know. I got to go watch that one now. 
Yeah, I was paying more attention to building the walls because Theo had a whole discussion about that with the little girl who was being molested, like built walls so thick she couldn't even see into her. And yeah, but yeah, they do have that tall man reference. I guess they're trying to explain some of these ghosts. And of course, uh, they're all trapped there in the room. They're all being eaten by these delusions. They probably would all die here were it not for Nell. Nell, yeah, she killed herself, but that means that she's here and she's here in Hill House, and it means that she can rouse them from these nightmares as well. And she's kind of the one that brings the family together, as she's always wanted to do, but no one would listen. So you see, this is a good thing that she's dead in Hell House, right? No, I think the metaphor is that her death, whether it was suicide or not, her death is what made this family finally confront their trauma and start to heal. You can't just crutch on metaphor, though, when the thing that tormented them were ghosts. They weren't tormented by metaphors as a child. Yeah, I mean, good thing? No, of course not. But it did allow uh, healing to begin. It brought people together. I mean, again, maybe they were. I mean, you're taking this stance. To be clear, there may be no ghost in Hill House. You can watch this show and say this is psychological, this is mental illness. That is a very valid reading about what's going on. So yes, it could be metaphor. I, I'm telling you, I had sleep paralysis as a child. Like, that that wasn't real ghost. It's something that tormented me, though. I, it... I think that breaks apart in this episode. I don't think you can go with mental illness the way this episode involves so many people. I like it more when it does have the ambiguity and could be. I, I think it's presenting, and I think it's come out in this conversation, maybe things that are tricky things you don't want to look back on traumas that we're still dealing with it's a way to frame all of that in a more entertaining way oh it's just a ghost story just a haunted house like and but your brain knows what's going on it's picking up on things behind the scenes so yeah it, it i think that's one of the powerful things with art or with film whatever it's it's fictional but it has an effect in our real life it helps us process things that maybe is just too difficult to do uh, without coming up with like scary ghosts to pretend that that's what's haunted us our whole life yeah nell is now become this fragmented thing that they all have different memories of her that they all kind of are experiencing her it's kind of this weird moment that they're all in the red room and she seems to be talking nonsense and they eventually realize they just haven't asked the question she's answering yet and that we're now seeing time as fragmented and not linear but in fact that they don't have to leave her ever like she can always be with them and again i think that's what a ghost is that is those moments i talk about replaying there's there's some things that experiences that happen in your life that stay with you and even if you've left the physical space I think that's healing for this family to know that. It allows them to leave a room that is eating them alive. Meanwhile, we have Hugh outside the room. And he's got to confront Olivia and Poppy. And Poppy is the one ghost that seems truly malevolent here. Like, she's going to try to talk everybody into killing themselves and children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that she is the ambassador for <laughs> live in Hill House forever. Never check out. I want you to stay here. She's always got the sales pitch for why the best idea is to wall yourself away from the outside world. And so, yeah, I mean, he's also got his wife asking, like, who have you become? Like, keep in mind, uh, Olivia only saw Henry Thomas. Like, <laughs> the fact that she's now looking at Timothy Hutton, like, what have you become? Like, who are you now in all of this time that has passed? He has to explain that, like, he gave up his life. Like, in some ways... This is about sacrifice, you know, 
some people have sacrificed with their lives. Some people have sacrificed for humanitarian reasons. His cross to bear is that he has allowed himself to be the monster to these kids so that they would never know what happened and specifically what Olivia did in poisoning Abigail. Like he took that on the chin and, and it cost him a lot. It cost him a lot of his relationships. Only Nell loved him in all of that time. But he's going to choose to ghost out here. Olivia's like, why didn't you come and see me for so long? And so he doesn't get to leave again. He's like, eh, I'm just going to hang out here. This is better. I take it almost like a trade. Well, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. I take it that he died. I mean, he's having some heart palpitations or whatever. He's laying there like, yeah, with a pill bottle next to him. And he said something about heart issues. And again, if you take the idea of the themes of self-sacrifice and people giving their lives to to help younger generations and the way that Theo now helps kids and the way that Shirley helped the little kid process his grandmother, like his way of doing that is like, I'm going to give up my life so that Luke can get off the ground. Because at this point, Luke is still kind of like foaming at the mouth and coughing up blood. And I think dad gives him the strength to to stand up. And I think that's the way we're to read that. I mean, this movie is definitely becoming in this episode, very highly metaphorical psychodrama. I feel like what we're watching are symbolic acts more than literal things happening. Yeah, I will say as a piece of criticism with this final episode is where I thought it did such a good job with its ambiguity. Like this one does feel like it leans a whole lot more into the ghost stuff. And it's like, oh, it's ghosts all the time. Like here we got because we got to do some scary ghost stuff here attacking each of the kids and everything. And, and I was so into like the real emotions it was tapping into. Like this one just felt again a little more like, I don't know, maybe this was the mass audience's one with a haunting story is ghost actually torturing people. But I was over that by this point. Well, to hear Flanagan discuss it, it wasn't what necessarily the horror audience wants. I think this episode gets some criticism from people that were like, wow, for nine episodes, I was really scared. And now it's become this tearjerker. I didn't want to go there. Okay, you you preemptively said my criticism is that this one feels so different from the others and not a good way. Well, Flanagan said he always wanted to go there, six feet under, the things he was talking about. Going back to the sentimental was always in his mind that it is a family story. It's like, I, I tend to agree. The thing that he built wasn't leading towards teeth coming out of the wall and trying to bite Luke's head off, right? Like, we can all agree special effects haunting 1999 is not going to work. No, I don't want a giant lion flu swinging and biting his head off. Yeah, you could argue... And I think I would would say, as if I could go and edit some of this, maybe less talking in general. I feel like there's a lot of blah, blah, blah. This is an extended episode. There's a lot even more that you can see. I feel like, yeah, you're at your capper. You want everyone to get what you're doing. You're over-explaining things. Agreed. I was I was actually fine when I saw the last episode was the longest. Good. Take your time. Have a good climax. Oh, you're doing this? No. Shorten it by a half hour. This one's 70 minutes long and like the final, like 45 minutes, like wrap it up. Like resolve everything and, and end it. Yes. Be that as it may, it's a small quibble because I can say whatever you want to say about like, oh, too much, this much, I'd rather have horror. Like, I would be lying if I said I wasn't emotionally like devastated by this ending. Like, tears, 
I can't not watch this. And three times I've cried every time. There's no way I cannot experience the pain of what this family has gone through in these final moments. Perhaps one of the reasons I don't like family dramas is I do not get invested in their stories. And so I'm feeling nothing during this. I wanted to feel more fright. I wanted to find out more revelations about the house, the ghosts. Maybe you are Theo. Maybe you are afraid to, to feel this. Maybe you don't want to let it in. No, I'm I'm not afraid of it. It just washes over me. It does not come in. This is the exact opposite of the climax I wanted for the series. I'm not going to deny that I can objectively look at this and say, it's okay melodrama. It's not terrible. It's not something I would ever choose to watch, but that doesn't mean I can't look at it and go, you know, they. it's certainly melodrama. It is certainly over-the-top shorthand, soap operatic type stuff, but it's very well acted, and I think that helps a lot. Right. Yeah, these are characters that have been released, and now what are they going to do? And we see everyone make an attempt to create a home for themselves, a new place. They're leaving Hill House. They're leaving their trauma. They're leaving their mother's death behind. They're stopped blaming their father. What does that mean? It means that Stephen is going to go apologize to Lee. Sorry I didn't tell you about my vasectomy. Sorry I wasn't honest and a good husband. So I'm kind of sorry that I cheated a bunch of people out of, you know, like money and for fake stories and what have you. Surely she's going to tell Kevin what she did on the business trip six years ago. Theo's going to move in with Trish. Throw away her gloves. I mean, I think all of this stuff, shorthand or not, like this is profound. This is... Characters that have truly gone through something and moved on. Yeah, Luke is two years clean. Like, this little wrap-up, like, I kind of was expecting this, but it works. Like, because I have been invested with this family, I have gone through the emotions they have gone through and and so yeah i i don't like over sentimentality but I, I this gets it just just shy of that like where i'm like yeah okay happy ending you guys deserve it at this point you've worked through some trauma it's just shy of it for you it's way past the finish line of it for me the part that's too much for me is like when they change that line like who walks here walks alone now they walk together oh my god which means, again, they should have all just died there and stayed together, right? Bring this family. I don't know if you see the value of living a life and having experiences. I don't think the ghosts have that. If they walk alone, that's sad. But not if you don't grow. They're not going to have any new experiences. They're just ghosts. Yeah, they could have all died there. And maybe they did, Arnie. It is a fan theory. I want to point out, when we see Luke's two-year sobriety celebration, he is blowing out candles on a red cake. And it kind of looks like the Red Room. And so maybe they are still there. There are some people that will tell you they never did leave. And this is all delusion. But they live in the delusion happily. You know what? I would go with that as a much better explanation of this ending. Because this ending feels too pat and too easy. Okay. I'm not sure how they could dramatically bring a close to something you didn't want to be drama. Well, let's close it out. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend The Haunting of Hill House? Jacob. You know, we, we've had some discussion, like, do you want to see your real life reflected in art? And that can be painful. And, you know, family dysfunction, probably everyone experiences. I, I know our family's pretty dysfunctional at times. And, you know, when it's realistic, like marriage story, I don't want to watch that. Like, watch real a real life situation of people just fighting. Like, give me the Royal Tenenbaums. Give me Wes Anderson. Put that family dysfunction so it's all symmetrical and everyone's quirky. And, like, I could laugh, but it's also processing in the back of my mind the real stuff. 
often. Like, I feel those real emotions, but it, it's just distance enough. And I think that is, with horror, as just a genre in general, like, something that's really useful is, like, let's process real-life fears through Freddy or Jason or through this ghost or that. Like, so I think this is a really great example of how, again the power of art where you can take something fictional and process a lot of real life trauma through it. And it's just, it's distance just enough where, Oh no, this is a horror ghost story where I'm going to be scared. And Oh, there's a little bit of mystery. What happened with the mom? I I, I got to figure that out. And, and what's the true story about this family leaving on this mysterious night? Like, but in the back of my mind, like I'm feeling all those real emotions and that trauma is like being processed. And, and so I think this is really powerful at doing that. Like I, I really got into most of these character stories just because yeah, it was, tapping into real life things and what you know sorry i beat you to the it comparison arnie but it was something (laughs) on my mind and i was going to bring it up now so i had to beat you to it anyway i guess but here's the thing and and i'm going off of the the movies and tv series i haven't read the prose of it i i don't generally like stephen king's prose but i know it touches people but you know the thing with like it no matter how well that thing is ever going to be written for a movie it's always going to be about a scary clown like, it can't escape that. It's always about a clown. Like, that's scary. And you could have all this other stuff. But, like, to me, like, Stephen King, he always has those notions where, like, you're going to get stuck with a scary clown. And, yeah, there might be other stuff to it. But, like, that's the main attraction. But watching this, like, if this was some big Stephen King ripoff, like, watching this, I get why people might be attracted to King's prose. I get why. Here, here's the crazy thing. I haven't read The Shining. But if it's about all this family trauma and not about all the atmosphere and Jack Nicholson going crazy like Kubrick did. I could almost empathize with Stephen King's being upset with that brilliant Kubrick film because yeah if, if you were trying to get at real emotion that that might get you upset that it, it's just it's more stylized it's more glamorized but like this I think is really trying to get at something real and so because it's not based on a scary clown or, or some gimmick like that it's a haunted house which is pretty general like I, I'm able to just get into it more and again go with these characters go with the metaphor again I think this version of the haunting 100% psychological 100% real ghost at the same time but that's the ambiguity like I, I think it rides that line just right enough so I, I think it's I love the writing of this again I, I would not want to have to be in the writer's room remembering every flashback that we got to cut to and piece this whole thing together but I think it's very well constructed I mean we talked about episode six where like just the camera work is greatly constructed just with all those long shots and everything but yeah I was I was surprised because I'm very like uh, you want me to invest nine and a half hours Oof, there, there's a lot of films where I don't want to invest 90 minutes so but no i i was surprised how much i got into this how much it touched me i didn't cry i'm sorry Stuart, but i did get into a lot of the emotional moments there like i said with episode five i had to take a break after that one so yeah this is a solid recommend watch this miniseries Stuart. yeah you know maybe the greatest joy of what we get to do here at now playing is that in tracing these peaks and valleys of a retrospective of our career suddenly you can like just be knocked on your ass. You can watch somebody that, you know, I knew Mike Flanagan had talent. Like, you know, I liked Gerald's game. There were things even in Dr. Sleep when, when he got to the Overlook Hotel, I'm like, yeah, this guy is good, but nothing in his filmography prepared me for the technical or emotional wallop of what this miniseries packs. Like for 10 hours, I am completely captivated. I scream. I'm scared. I'm laughing. I'm crying. I am incredibly moved. It is, again, I probably surprised him. 
Like, he was at a weird place. I want to just remind you that he was coming to this, begging Amblin to let him do this because he felt like in some way he was going to be able to to use this to commune with someone that he lost in his life. I don't know who that was, but you can feel that. You can feel his need to commune with the long-lost loved one in this piece. It's It's all over this thing. And again, maybe you don't like that if you want pure suspense horror, but I don't think you can make a TV series work that way. I don't think we could be terrified for nine, ten hours. I don't think the human body would let you, at some point you would just go comatose. It just wouldn't allow you to feel terror for that long. What Mike Flanagan has done here, quite simply, is what you hope anyone does when they readapt a classic. He has preserved the foundation, and he has added new rooms, And it is impossible to see where the original ends and the new construction begins. He has made something of the same piece as Shirley Jackson. It has as much to say as her book on, you know, domesticity and child rearing and marriage. All her concerns in the 50s, they feel just as current here in 2018. Her blueprint, his restoration is the same house. And that is a remarkable achievement that rarely happens. You can have great movies. Again, Kubrick's Shining, great movie, has very little to do with that book in the end, as as Stephen King will tell you. And what's, again, so amazing is how well Flanagan has expanded the novel and honored the novel. And what a great cast, what a great crew. You can have quibbles. I mentioned a few of them. I agree with some of the ones you guys have brought up. But nothing about this is going to change the fact that I'm just absolutely floored by this. I think that this is a masterpiece, and it is the highest of recommends. I really think that, yeah, one of the great horror works is Hill House 2018. And to go back to something you said, Jacob, you know, I think one of the points that I've made is that in order for me to get into a drama film, it has to be something really special. You brought up a marriage story I was enthralled. I cried during a marriage story. I couldn't stop feeling that movie. And yet this does not do that for me. You know, I'm watching this and what I realized around episode four is I'm watching the Gilmore ghosts here. If you like that type of show, if you like This Is Us and you like horror, this is the Twix mix up you've been looking for. It got your chocolate in their peanut butter. For me, I'm right there on the edge, but because I do feel the first episodes of this really dragged for me with its flashback montage and its teasing out of information. I saw what it was doing. Lost did it better. And the haunting bit didn't really get going until episode five. But then episode five really, you know, I'll, I'll say it grabbed me by the throat. <laughs> And episode six, in isolation, is as good as Stewart said the whole series is, in my opinion. Episode six, I will put up there because of the technical mastery of it. And then, you know, it stays pretty good for seven, eight, nine, and then ten. Ten is a denouement that they didn't need. Ten seems to become a different series there, and it muddles the entire thing. And so I'm left on the line with this, but because of episodes five and six, I can eke this into weak recommend. 
but I really want you to know what you're going in for. You're not going in for the what the trailer seemed to promise me was 10 hours of some of the most gut-wrenching, suspenseful horror of child trauma brought into adulthood that you could imagine. It is, I would say, 85% family drama with 15% of horror and that's the exact opposite ratio I personally would enjoy. But I will green arrow this with a weak recommend because of how great five and six are. Again, it's a haunting. Like, I don't feel like hauntings are necessarily about terrifying you. They're about haunting you. They're about the emotional overwroughtness of something that you can't change from your past still floating around. Every episode has something very unnerving in it. Every episode does. It has a couple minutes of unnerving in an hour of drama. Some episodes have more, and those are the episodes I like more. One thing before we close, worth pointing out, worth bringing out. Why aren't we doing season two? What's this about haunting a blind manor? Will we ever cover this? Yeah, I saw he did the, what, the exact same thing? I I've had never watched this before, but I, I saw that come up in the credits. Like after I watched this, it's like, you got to watch this next same guy. They'll call it even season two. Netflix is trying to tell you it's of the same piece, but Flanagan has been pretty clear. We're never going to see the cranes again. And what he did in the haunting of Bly Manor is adapt an entirely different haunted house story. And that is the turn of the screw by Henry James. I want to know when he's going to get the two, the Titanic book that Stephen Crane wrote. <laughs> we could do that franchise. We could do a turning of the screw franchise. It has an arc very similar to what we just covered. There is a early 1960s black and white classic that many people will tell you was great called The Innocents. It has a Hollywood remake called The Turning came out a couple years ago with Finn Wolfhart. It's really bad. Stranger Things, yeah. So, But it doesn't have that 1999 CGI, I bet. He, actually, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are nine episodes of a Flanagan adaptation of Turn of the Screw, which is, again, the story about a governess comes to a creepy mansion to take care of two children who might be sociopaths trying to kill her, or there might be ghosts there, or she might just be sexually repressed. Listeners, let us know. If that's something you're interested in, it's certainly something we can look at putting on the schedule. And I'll just say this, while I do recommend Haunting a Bly Manor, it is not the same thing for me. It is not as good. In fact, in all incarnations of Turn of the Screw, it's not as good. The book ain't as good as Shirley Jackson, the 60s movie, shit, even Haunting 1999. Haunting 99 is way better than The Turning, in my opinion. <laughs> Wait, the middle one is worse than the 99 one? <laughs> oh, no. we might need to see that then. <laughs> but if you do want more Flanagan, and I know I do, I will be watching this Friday, premiering on Netflix, his new miniseries, Midnight Mass. I don't know much about it, but it's original that he wrote about a New England island that gets a new priest, and then strange phenomenon starts happening. It's going to have Kate Siegel in it. The Dudleys are in it as well. No other Hill House veterans. But yeah, I'm really hoping for good stuff. And I will just put out there, if you want a really solid Mike Flanagan recommend from me, Ouija 2. I, unbelievable Ouija 2. I'm, I hear very good things. And you've mentioned that many times. Yeah. That one, it's an entertaining enough, yeah, horror movie. For a modern horror movie, like, it, it's pretty good. It doesn't blow its load like so many do. It's very fun, yes. But if you want more of this, it's not coming. I don't know that they're going to 
frankly, this is a drop of the mic moment. I don't think anyone would dare try to adapt Shirley Jackson again after this one. You you can go to Universal. If I still lived in L.A., I would go see their maze this Halloween season. They are doing this miniseries as something you can walk through. And so I guess if you need an encore, that's going to be it. Mike Flanagan did come and help them build the sets. It's going to look exactly like the set on this show. Bent neck lady will be there. Tall man will be there. <laughs> I bet that chandelier is going to fall and almost hit you. Mm, yeah, I think so. But uh, that's it. There will be probably no other extension to this universe. So the extension we'll have is when we finally do get to Paranormal Activity as our gold level series and a little over a month, uh, we can see as a compare and contrast between a classic haunting story and a contemporary take on, on what's scary in a haunted house. I'll be curious to know your thoughts, Arnie, and if that's more your flavor. I am too. Never seen them. But in the meantime, next week, we're going to do a different kind of horror. It may not even be horror. It's not drama either. It's Christian Bale as a yuppie killing women because, well, he can. He's a one percenter. He's an American psycho. Saw this movie when it came out. And I'd been so excited because I thought it was a slasher and all the hype around it. I was let down back then, but a patron has asked us to go back and it's actually something I've wanted to revisit with renewed expectations since. I did not expect the comedy that it was back then. I was very let down because I had thought I was going in to see Silence of the Lambs meet Psycho. Yeah, it's definitely not that, but also worth pointing out, we are doing the other one too. Two weeks late from now, there is an American Psycho 2 with Mia Kunis. <laughs> it's got <laughs> Mila Kunis and William Shatner. Oh no. This has got to be on the level of Donnie Darko 2. Like, I know I never want to do this one. Yes. When somebody pledged for American Psycho, my immediate response is, we don't normally do twofers for a pledge, but this one's got to be seen. <laughs> I've seen that one, too, and I'm like, <laughs> what? William Sh like a star in it, William Shatner? Oh, no. You want to do Cats, Jacob. I want the butthole cut of American <laughs> Psycho 2. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I haven't seen that one, and so it shall be for the next couple weeks. But also, don't worry, because we will be covering Venom. In two weeks, we're going to be doing two reviews on the totally free main feed. On Tuesday, reviewing Venom, Let There Be Carnage. And then on Friday, when we normally do a donor show, we're doing one for everybody with American Psycho 2. And looking at the upcoming schedule, we did announce on our Facebook group this week, we will be reviewing Loki as well. Our schedule is going to undergo some changes. Top Gun moved again. Venom moved up. Top Gun moved back. Not sure what else is going to move, but we heard the cries. Loki will be coming. And before we go, we've got an all-new giveaway to tell you about. This week, we're kicking off our Cruella giveaway thanks to Disney. They gave us five digital download codes to the 101 Dalmatians prequel. And so to enter... Head to Facebook and join the Now Playing Listeners group. It has been a source of great delight and great discussion and perhaps the most drama-free group I've ever seen on Facebook. And subscribe to our InFocus newsletter. Head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the subscribe link at the top. Jason, 
He sends out every Friday a newsletter just chock full of information about now playing and the big things in the movies now playing has covered, will cover, or are covering. Each one of those gives you an entry to win one of five digital download codes to Cruella, starring Emma Stone. We're not doing a Dalmatians retrospective, but if you win, we want you to review the film for everyone on the Facebook group. Might even put it in the In Focus newsletter, and this is one of a ton of giveaways we're doing right now. Keep checking the Facebook group and in focus for new announcements. We're going to be giving away a lot of different codes for movies, movies that do relate to what Now Playing's doing. So join the group and follow the newsletter for that information. Like last week, through the newsletter, we gave away a copy of Don't Breathe, which is our movie going out to silver level donors this Friday. The 2016 movie... Finally, we're covering it this week. So thank you for listening to Now Playing. Thank you to our donors for your support. And until next time, purgatory is over. You go to hell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Is it over? Do you think it's over? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. What if I have a bad dream? I'm sure we can handle any dream you have. You can hear more movie reviews at our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. In our archive section, you can find reviews of the Insidious films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Saw, and hundreds more. There's something down here. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and we get hurt? Really hurt? You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks. Find the details on our website. I have to join them. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Don't you love it here? This is so twisted. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. 
really can't stand it anymore, and I, I have to die. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Now I want you two to get good rest. Now playing is edited by Heath, Santiago, and Arnie. You all suffer from sleep disorders. Now playing credits read by Brock. It knows my name. This time it knows my name. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. When he said those things, he believed them. You never did! Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Have you ever kept something to yourself because you were afraid? All the time. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. So there won't be anyone around if you need help. We couldn't even hear you in the night. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Purgatory's over! You go to hell! He was a house remodeler joining in on that 90s trend of buying houses cheap, fixing them up, and selling them for a profit. Remember all those seminars? They almost got me doing that. Yeah, flipping houses. My dad tried to do that and lost a bunch of money. <laughs> Home and Garden <laughs> channel is filled with these house flipping shows. It's still with us. She's also apparently a big part, or some part, of the Twilight universe. I don't know. Haven't seen those. Maybe we'll cover them. Yeah, she's she's Mother Colon. She's she's the mother of the vampires. Mother Colon? She's the anus? Colon. With the U. Oh, okay. I thought you said colon, like C-O-L-O-N. <laughs> colon. <laughs> Maybe it was the house, but she doesn't... Ooh, what was that? Something banged outside. Oh, the doors are banging. Yeah.